0: Ladies and gentlemen, each evening here at the Cabaret of Magic, we like to ask a member of our audience, a volunteer to step forward on the stage to be Santini's attendant or assistant, if you would, perhaps a beautiful young woman. We have a beautiful young man instead. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored because this gentleman stands before you is none other than Lieutenant Columbo of the Los Angeles Police Department. Welcome, Lieutenant. <laughs> Lieutenant, you look like a man who enjoys a game of chance. Do you play cards? Yes, sir. Down at the station? Yes, sir. <laughs> Does the chief know about that, Lieutenant? No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome to the Nightfly Podcast with me, Dave Juskow, special edition taping at the comedy cellar, as we like to do with a guest I have been talking about for a very long time, Michael Riedel. Everybody, I think I pronounced that correctly. You did, yes. It was you know for a long time well, until I heard the radio show I didn't know it was pronounced a different way. No it was always
1: Rydell I ever mean, Oh Rydell High School oh, from of Greece of course from Greece I mean, yeah. who doesn't know. But I say cuz I'm a very sophisticated person I say no Riedel, <laughs> like the wine glasses.
0: Yeah, yeah well it's cool that's a good that's a good
1: I like the pronunciation it's exciting I don't know why. It's I don't a, uh, don't get any royalties from those wine glasses sadly my family uh we're related to that family but very distant. oh really and my family decided that they would become poor immigrants rather than stay in austria and uh, get rich with the family making the glass that's a smart move they decided to come like here. my
0: parents did the same Absolutely. thing except they, just just they're idiots yeah they can <laughs> they
1: decided to come here they thought you know got this nice glass blowing business going but <laughs> we'd rather come to new york and be poor
0: yeah I think a lot of people did. So that's what happened in the 19th century, and that's how I wound up uh, with no royalties from the glass well, company. Well, I'm just glad you're here. I have been uh, waiting to talk to you. I, when I found out that we met um, through, well, technically, we've never met before. <laughs>
1: right, because like, I was going to say, I have no memory
0: of the uh, Yeah, no, 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 no but we went through through uh, Tom Shalhoub and Fox sure. News and uh, Matt, and, and he was kind enough to, when I found out you were on the show, I'm like, wait, you, you, you know him? Because I read your column all the time. Oh, I've been reading it for years. Thank you. And, um... I guess you kind of speak to me in a way because uh, it seems like we have a lot of the same views on Broadway and stuff. And also, well, you're straight, right? You just said you had a girlfriend. And (laughs) you and me might be the only ones who really enjoy the theater and are straight. Well,
1: you know, another one who was straight and enjoyed the theater, in fact, was very successful in the theater, was Mike Nichols. And Mike Nichols always said, he told me once, he said, look, if you're a straight guy, the
0: best way to get women oh. is to go in the theater. Musical theater. Forget absolutely. it. Oh, my God. Yeah. So
1: that's why he went into the theater as in you, high school. Danielle. Daniel's
0: you. bringing us our, our wine and coffee. Lovely. <laughs> oh, there.
1: And you know what? <laughs> I mean, so I, I have to say,
0: uh, Mike was
1: absolutely yeah, right. Just, because before good. I um, before I happily settled down, It
0: was great being a powerful theater comic. Oh my god, I I can't even imagine you. The chorus girls, unbelievable. It doesn't sound uh, (laughs) like a thing where you'd say, "Oh, that must be puss nasty galore." (laughs) I mean, it's like it's true, right? I mean, it was terrific. My friend Vincent Masso, he was in the original production of Hair. Oh yeah, yeah. The original, he's straight, Mm -hmm. you know, and he was good looking, right? And yeah, he would. uh, I mean, I've seen pictures of him, you know, when he was younger, and it was. It must have been. He told me it, it was, you know, being. It's like um. Marsha Mason, no, said in the Goodbye Girl type, you know. Like usually, they're you know, it's very rare to meet a straight guy. And, <laughs> you know, I was yeah. thinking about that movie the other day, The Goodbye Girl, which I think is a
1: it's a wonderful movie. It was on my mind because I'm just finishing a book, and uh, Neil Simon is in this book, and I I don't him. know who that is. Yeah, uh, s- aspiring comic writer he made That's a little
0: coin in the business,
1: a little bit. He actually, you know, believe that this is true. Uh, he was, I think, remains the most successful financially um, playwright. In the history of the theater, there was a period that makes of sense. time. Yeah, there was I mean that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. In well, the like 60s, I don't believe you. In the 60s, he had I think three plays running on Broadway. Now this is the late 60s, early 70s, maybe, and he was making something like close to two hundred thousand dollars a week in, in the, the late six, 70s. In, in the 70s, yeah, oh my god! In the late, late 60s and early 70s, and uh, anyway, <clears throat> uh, I was talking to Marsha and I hadn't seen The Goodbye Girl in a long time. And what is so good about it, what's so good about Neil at his best is the lines are great. The comic situation is great. The comedy does come from the characters as it should and all these good things. But in an instant, he could just give you poignancy. And the moment that that happens in the Goodbye Girl is when Marcia, she's at the end of her wits, you know. And she's walking in the middle of the street. (coughs) Excuse me. And she drops the groceries and the pasta just scatters all over the street. And she just. That's it for her. And just before that, there was a comic scene, and then you see this woman is her life is falling apart, and there oh, she
0: gets stuff. robbed. There isn't that what it is? She does. She gets robbed, I, and that's may, where they take yeah, the groceries, she gets, yeah, right? She gets yeah, robbed,
1: and then they drop the thing. Yeah, she yeah. Just looks around.
0: And yeah, so, and that's like, I just what a it, week I'm having. I, yeah, but
1: it's it's really poignant.
0: It's really poignant. Uh, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. My sister and I know. I mean, she would sleep with Richard Dreyfus to this day because of that movie. <laughs> and I um, uh, actually heard. Uh, Marsha Mason on Gilbert Gottfried's show wow. recently. Yeah. And she t- uh, mentioned, and I, I read your book, by the way. It was fantastic. Oh, Razzle Dazzle. I mean, yes, Razzle Dazzle. I mean, just for somebody like me, and I, I don't know whether my listeners, I, I think it's most interesting of how all the theaters got out you know, the Schubert's and, and yeah, all that the kind power. of stuff. about right. the people who really run the business. But then you were also, you did know, a whole chapter on a chorus line, which of course, to me, and the, being the same age, that was the one that... Set everything off that there, there's another way to do musicals. Certainly I was brought up on, you know, the old ones. Yeah. But that when my parents took me, they're like, you gotta see this, you gotta see this play, you gotta see this play. And then I saw it with all the hype. You're just like, oh, whatever. Like, right, right. wow, you know, like just from the opening number. And I talk about it a lot on the podcast, but she, uh, she said that it was her idea to, 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 she was talking to Michael Bennett yeah. and said she, he asked her to come to, you know, one of the productions, like, we're having some trouble. And she goes, no, you got to have Cassie make the chorus. Yeah. Because he was right. going to do it the other way. Right. And she said it was her idea that said, no, you ha- you have to. Right. We-, we need a happy ending. He's like, but that's not the way life works. He goes, she goes, I don't care. It's a failure.
1: <laughs> right. Well, you know, Neil Simon contributed the best line in the
0: whole. <laughs> oh, life. that was in your book, I believe. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, the
1: best line is committing suicide in Buffalo is redundant. Right. <laughs> that was Neil Simon's line. Isn't that amazing? Right. And well, see, you- Neil and Michael were very good friends. Because I can't remember the play that Neil did. It was not one of his successful ones. But they brought Michael in uh, to kind of doctor it because the director wasn't up to it. Mm. And my friend uh, Scott Rudin, the producer, he was a, a production assistant on the show. And he saw Michael Bennett at work one day. And he said there was an entrance and there was no laugh or they, they weren't getting the reaction from the audience they wanted. And he said Michael just walked up on the stage, kind of looked around then goes come in stage left but just at a diagonal guy does it right boom the laugh is there it was that he that he just knew exactly what you do to get the reaction from the audience that you want
0: when i was reading your book about um about michael bennett and and the you know and and trevor nunn and and uh tommy Toon even yeah. these guys who know that kind of stuff yep uh fascinating cuz i that's something i could never do um maybe i i can direct a film or something that's different it seems you know just you take a chance whatever but (laughs) but directing a play which i've tried to do before because i couldn't get anybody else to do it (laughs) Right, that's it's a vision yeah and you must have that vision and that's why mike nichols and it's fascinating how much he's in the book and like you said being a straight guy and a love of the theater of course back then it was okay to like the theater it wasn't you know i mean yeah it was different i mean listen
1: you know rogers and hammerstein were straight Alan J. Lerner. But it was Frederick different Lowe back then, and
0: now, but now it's not like no, that George at all. George Kaufman was
1: straight. Yeah. Foss Hart was not.
0: Well, that's our <laughs> parents, were, like our dads would give you, yeah, musical theater is great, great, but then, you know, our friends don't care as much. They're not, it's just not. I do think, though, that musical theater, certainly in my career,
1: has become much more a part of the mainstream popular culture than it was when I was growing up. It really was for... You know, gay kids and theater geeks like you and me. Yeah. But now everybody, kids, gay, straight, whatever, they know Rent. They know Chicago. They, they know, know Les the banking. They know Wicked. Yeah. They know the Book of Mormon. I mean, the Book of Mormon is as straight a Broadway musical as you're going to
0: find. Yeah, it's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, God, there's so much I want to talk to you about. And sometimes when you bring up stuff, I'm like, oh, let me skip over to that. So, so um, you, I'm friends with David Yazbek.
1: Oh yeah, I like David a lot. Straight,
0: by the way. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, this is why the theater is being ruined by all these straight people. <laughs> What's that all about? Um, so I saw Tootsie, and I liked it very much. And yeah. I saw that you had just – I mean you just did like a recent article like a month ago or two that yeah. that it was closing, and yeah. you were surprised because I enjoyed it very much. I was surprised actually how much I enjoyed it. Sure. Because sometimes with those movies like – um well, I'll talk about that in a second. But um, Stay focused. Stay focused. <laughs> I know. It's really difficult. <laughs> I have so many questions. Um, but sometimes with a, a, a movie that we know so well – I don't, you know, when they make it a play, it, but I didn't care at all. I like totally forgot the movie, and I was going with the show. Mm-hmm. And Yazbek had told me, he's like, "Hey, could you bring your comedy friends like Sarah Silverman and Jeff Ross and have them tweet it because I think it's the funniest show ever mm-hmm. on Broadway." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "But you've seen the Book of Mormon, right? Because like, they come to <laughs> that. You well, but you know, he
1: didn't write that one. You see, <laughs> I know, but it's just, I
0: know, but it's just like it. That I feel like that's why it closed. The promotion <laughs> was bad. Those. You know, the uh, ads where everybody's laughing yeah. and Anything. And you know, and it, um, unfortunately, it, it wasn't that funny. I mean, it was funny. It was really good. I was sitting next to Robert Horn the night I went oh, Robert's cause I went with Amy Yazbeck, yeah. who is kind of related to David Yazbeck, who's the widow of John Ritter. Right.
2: Oh, right, right, right. And we
0: sat next to Robert Horn, you know, while we were watching the play and he was just like, you know, like. Oh, people aren't laughing enough. It's a Saturday night. I'm like, and I'm like, well, how is that? A th- I would think Saturday night would be the you know, I know. But he's like, no, they're not laughing enough. And but I'm not sure what they he expected from it. It's not. It, it's uh, it's great, but it wasn't like the laugh. Book of Mormon is on another right. level.
1: Well, what they did that I thought was very smart with Tootsie, and um, <clears throat> this is where they go wrong when they take a lot of movies and put them on stage. They don't change them. I mean. A movie's a movie, a musical's a musical. Two different things. So Robert Horn and David Yazbek thought, okay, we're going to take Tootsie, the beloved movie. Everyone knows the lines, you know. How do you feel about Cleveland? (laughs) Right, of course. One nutty hospital. And Robert Horn said, I'm not going to use any of those lines because the audience knows them already. So the laugh is not going to be there because they know it's coming, right? So he very skillfully wrote his own jokes, which are as good as the Larry Gelbart jokes in the movie. Agreed. You know, and – David wrote a very good score, I thought. I thought it was great, too. You know, but I'll tell Very you, entertaining. I'll tell you why the show didn't work, though. It got great reviews. show didn't work because they did market research when their ticket sales began to slump. And as much as you and I may love Tootsie, okay, it's a generational thing. Younger than we are, people do not know that movie. And they thought it was a drag show. Oh, and there's so much drag in the theater now you got kinky boots and hairspray
0: because I was going to say what's the difference if they don't know it that's probably better because then I was looking at it like I've never seen this movie but I was just pretending I'm going to go in I'm not going to compare
1: what, not knowing the movie was about a straight guy okay an out of work actor who has to pose as a woman to get work they thought it was a drag show it was a camp drag show and I think Broadway has a glut of camp drag shows
0: so people just weren't interested what a, a do you think Mrs. Doubtfire will have that exact same issue?
1: Different generation. There's a younger generation that grew up in the Mrs. Doubtfire movie. That generation is older now, have money, will go to the theater, and they love Mrs. Doubtfire.
0: It's the generation, though, that did not know Tootsie. Right. Well, that's what i was saying. I'm, I'm sitting in the theater. I'm like, I bet you these people haven't even seen the movie. So then what is the issue? You know, for why not just... You know, just uh, go with it, and I—I I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. I—I I don't know why, um, but that's the. Um, all right, now I'm gonna, now I'm gonna go to where I need to go, okay. and it fits in with Tootsie. But okay. you are—you must clearly be friends with Andrew Carl or yes. something. Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> nice guy. Yes, he. I, I mean, i I think by accident, I've seen. Everything he's done. Even seen, Groundhog Day. Yes. I've seen Legally Blonde, Groundhog Day, Rocky, yes. Saturday Night Fever, oh, oh, um, even Saturday Night Fever. and Ooh. Pretty Woman. Okay. Ooh, so I'm I all in on, on Andy Carl. But you said in one of your columns, I'll never forget when Dear Evan Hansen was happening, which may have been the best this the best performance by an actor I've ever seen right. with Ben Platt. Right. That you said it was a competition between him and Andy Carl. Right. And I just felt Where's the competition? You must be friends with Andy Carl Because he, even though he was, Grand Hog was horrible, but he was, he's always good. He's, he's always, always good, good. He's always good. And reliable and, and charming. Right. But there was no competition that year. And that's why I thought. Maybe I'm like, this well, is my know, best friend. I don't, I want to make the, the, the <laughs> pretend there's a competition.
1: Well, no, it's not so much that because I don't know Andy that well. And I know, I actually know Ben Platt better now, oh. enough, because I'm friendly with his father, Mark Platt, the producer of Wicked. Oh, And okay. the Hollywood producer, producer of uh, La La Land.
0: Oh um, wow! But you see, you in my
1: business, you have to create drama sometimes. Oh, this, you oh, have, this when is you beautiful. write a column this makes so much sense. I. Mean, I I'm, I'm not really into sports,
0: even though I co-host a morning show with I know, Len, that was my other question Len Berman,
1: the sportscaster, famous sportscaster.
0: I, know, I thought I had found my soulmate because you like theater and sports, and because <laughs> you were with Len Berman. I'm like, if he likes football, then we're going to be the best of friends. <laughs> oh, no, no.
1: I've, I've learned a little
0: bit about sports now. Because I've I've, everybody's Len. been making fun of me that I'm having a guy like you on, I mean, you know, for theater, Greg, right. Super Bowl, Sunday weekend, you know, like, oh, yeah, for right. me. You know,
1: <laughs> I believe it's the 49ers in Kansas, <laughs> if is, I'm not yes. mistaken. Yeah, Len told me that this morning. <laughs> Len sometimes makes... Makes me do sports, which is quite amusing, because <laughs> I can't pronounce any of the names. Well, I heard you guys this morning; you're all they're all wearing red. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's right. Yes, I had no idea. Um, but I write though about Broadway the way a sports writer writes about sports. I handicap it. I second guess it. I play Monday morning quarterback. I do all the things that sports people get annoyed by sports writers for doing I oh, do that to the Broadway people. And so that's
0: why, I'm, I guess that's why your column is so
1: interesting. So I'm, yeah. Well, I'm always trying to create competition. And there is real rivalry on Broadway. You know, that Tony Award means everything to
0: these people. Well, that's, in your book, uh, um, it was the 1982 Tony Awards? Was it the Nine and Dream, uh, Girls, yeah. and Dream Girls? And that is a great chapter yeah. where you are talking about the competition between those two. It's, it's Tommy Toon and Michael Bennett, right? Mm-hmm. Who I didn't even know did Dream Girls. I, mm-hmm. I don't know why i really forgotten didn't yeah i i guess i thought he just i was thinking of the guy from rent and i thought he just michael bennett died after a chorus line like i i oh, get yeah. i was getting them mixed up he Died in eighty seven because both of them kind of died very young
1: yeah michael was only 44 right and uh, and jonathan larson was 43
0: yeah so i think i compare them sometimes in my head i get mixed up jonathan but... larson straight by the way
1: oh is that right yeah he was most people think he's gay and most people think he died of aids i did Not true oh no he was straight and he died of an aneurysm yeah
0: <sighs> Well, that's mis- unlucky.
1: Misdiagnosed. Yeah. You, want some, you want another yeah, wine? Misdiag- yeah, doing, yeah, yeah one more. Misdiagnosed as uh, first the flu. He went to the, he was actually in the, this is my new book, um, coming out, which will be called Singular Sensation. Nice. That's the title. Uh, I'm, all, uh, I'm all in. <clears throat> Jonathan Larson was at the dress rehearsal of Rent down at the New York Theater Workshop. And all of a sudden, he had this lashing pain across his chest. And he said, I think I'm having a heart attack to his friend. When he was lying on the back of the theater with that pain, he was listening to his show. And the song they were singing was, you're dying in America oh at God. the end of the millennium. That's the song they were singing.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So they take Jonathan to the hospital. The doctors diagnose diagnosed flu. They send him home. Calls in the next day, not feeling well. They say, yes, let's take the day off. Don't worry about it. Comes in the next day. And he's looking very um, flu-y, somebody said. Goes to the hospital again. This time they say, oh, it's food poisoning. (laughs) Send him home again. Next day he shows up for rehearsal. And looking as somebody, as Michael Greif said, he was just bundled. He looked like he was really cold. He looked like a guy was ill. And But it was January. So it was a cold, snowy thing. It's just like a guy's got a bad, bad cold. He just didn't look good. Somebody told me he looked green. And after the rehearsals that day, in the evening, Anthony Tomasini, who was the uh, opera critic for the New York Times, they pitched him a story on, it was the 100th anniversary of La Boheme, and Rent is based on La Boheme. So he was interviewing Jonathan Larson about La Boheme, because no one really knew what Rent was. Nobody would seen it. Right. Right? So the hook was, well, there's a modern take on the most famous opera of all time, and it's the 100th anniversary of this famous opera. So Tomasini sees the dress rehearsal and likes the show. And meets with uh, with Jonathan at the uh, – he was in the, the box office because it was the only sort of private place at the New York Theater Workshop where they could have a quiet talk. And a friend of mine was a press agent and Jonathan was tall. So as my friend was leaving the theater that night, he looked over and he saw Jonathan's eyes just above the level of the box office window. And he said, you know, they, were, they looked a little tired, he said, but excited because you know, he was being interviewed by the New York Times, yeah. which is the paper he grew up reading, right? So F- Jonathan Larson finishes the interview. He goes home to his apartment, uh, 508 Greenwich Street, fourth floor, walk-up, and uh, gets home, and there's a note from his roommate saying, I saw the run-through, it's great, I'm around the corner at the Ear Bar. You know the ear hey, bar I kid? do, it's right in Tribeca. Yeah, that's right. Yep. He lived around
0: the corner. In fact, uh, he's hanging out with Tom Shalhoub there a lot. All right.
1: Yeah. So the note says, we're around the corner at the Ear Bar, come celebrate. Jonathan Larson never shows up. His friend comes home at four in the morning and finds Jonathan Larson dead on the kitchen oh. floor. He would put a kettle... On for tea because he wasn't feeling well. And that's when the aneurysm just burst open. Oh, God. And he dropped dead on his floor.
0: Oh, that was so horrible. And that was before it opened, right? Yeah. And that's the, that's the, on the other the hand, lore. it was probably good for the show because it got a lot of
1: publicity and attention. Yeah. You know, and that show just, it's, it's it's one way to get to Broadway. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, that's too, that's so sad. I, I did think he died of AIDS too. I, or thought my dad was.
1: Everybody thinks he's, he died of AIDS. Yeah. It's amazing. But no, he did not. Michael Bennett died of AIDS.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that, again in your book, it's it, it just reads like a, a movie. You would think, you know, the way he funny, discovered it and
1: funny you should say that because it has been optioned to be made into a TV series.
0: Oh, that would be great. Well, yeah. it was
1: optioned once before too. <laughs>
0: again, that drama you put together with the Tony Awards and that thing you know, with these two friends, you know, oh, yeah. he, the and rivalry and, and the way you're like, okay, they're up six awards to four awards. You know, who's <laughs> going to win? I mean, exactly. it was really entertaining. Well, the
1: hardest thing to do there is you're trying to create suspense for. A situation that most people know the outcome. People know that, yeah, right. they know that nine be dream girls. It was a big, stunning upset. So I'm trying to. I had forgotten. Oh, so good. i You're, so you're it the perfect for reader. Me, yeah. You don't know anything. It's great. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you, the only way you can ratchet that kind of tension up if people know the outcome is you have to. Interview everybody who was involved in it and get them to tell you how they felt at that instant in time before they knew what was happening. So you've got to put the reader in their minds at a time, an intense time, where everything is on the line and they don't know how it's gonna turn out.
0: I think that's why your books are very if your research isn't just the way you say it was a fourth floor walk up. You know, something like that. I mean, like that that's all in the other book as well when you're talking about the Schubert Place where they oh, yeah. they they're on top of the St James Theater, you know, like and you you describe it all and everything. Yeah, and no,
1: when I was doing the um, uh, interviews for, uh, I mean,
0: how did you even interview? I mean, mo- I mean, you, I mean, it was so extensive, all the the information you received.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's the only way I know how to do a book. I'm not a, I'm not a creative writer, you know. I can't make things up. I do that in my column a lot, but in my books, I, I don't. Um, so I thought, all right, I, I have to have material. And the only way to get to material is to go interview the people who were there. And I don't want them to tell me this is what, in retrospect, this is what we well, That's thought. what i was saying. I wasn't yeah. sure how
0: many people were alive that you were able to you know, get uh, to at that point.
1: Uh, you know, several have died. Several people I interviewed for the first book have died. But I got to them at the right time. Perfect. You know, and also the great thing about that was they were older and they were successful. And they were talking about things in the past. So they could be really candid about things. But I would ask them, you know, I would say, Where did that meeting take place? What restaurant were you at? Who was there? Do you remember what people said? And fortunately, a lot of the people I interviewed had great memories, and they vividly recalled the details of certain things. And I would say, you know, tell me what was going through your mind at this moment? And then I would take that and
0: Yeah, and it works, and it's a really good read.
1: Well, with the Jonathan Larson chapters, I interviewed his father, Al Larson, who's still alive, and his sister, Julie Larson. I went out to California. They live in Cheviot Hills, just across from the Fox lot. So you're doing it again. You're, you can't help yourself. <laughs> I know, I know details. And I said, I want to know what that – Thank you. Like, I said, I want to know what that apartment looked like. And they described – the bathtub was in the kitchen and uh. his dirty clothes would always be in the bathtub. And they described where he kept his um, Casio piano wow. composed on. So I just had a visual sense of what it would have been like for him to go home that night not feeling well putting the tea kettle on and the last thing he would have seen would have been that, that bathtub
0: in his kitchen oh no. so, yeah no that's good stuff right. i mean you know sad but good and Details, like the way you, you even describe michael bennett's car you know like, <laughs> stuff like that that's like great well stuff. but you know
1: you've got to find things that illuminate the character of the person and i find the best way to show someone's personality is not to say he was funny he was depressed he was mean you have to have examples of yeah. things you know if somebody's funny tell me something they said that was funny if I have a joke that they used or some great line they came up with, I just need the line. People are going to know, oh, this guy's funny because the line's funny. I don't have to say he's funny. I don't have to say the guy's depressed if I say, what was his problem? Well, you know, he woke up like this. He couldn't get out of bed in the morning. We'd have to go fetch him and he'd be curled up in a ball. And, you know, this is Michael Bennett. Tommy Tune had to throw him in well, the shower.
0: Obviously a professional. of. um I mean, did you go to school for journalism? No, you just picked it up. You're just I- good at it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a it's a talent it is a talent no it is it's a it's a talent yeah no no no
1: I was uh I was a history major at Columbia oh, and I was, was going a go, history major too well, I was but going, not
0: at Columbia
1: well I went to Columbia in the 80s when you know it was not as difficult to get into as it is now I know New York City was I
0: know exactly what you mean I keep telling people I'm like you know I think if I was smarter right like uh, smarter in scamming yeah, right. I'm pretty sure I could have gone to Harvard because it wasn't that you could scam your way in. You really could, because I, I was doing some good Photoshopping before there was Photoshop. Yeah, exactly. 80s, you know, what I mean, yeah,
1: <laughs> things were not. That's
0: good. how I got into college. I went to Ithaca College. Oh, sure. My yeah, grades yeah. weren't, you know, but I had a good personal interview and
1: you personal know, interviews used to really count for a lot. Yeah. Like that. now it's like you know, unless you have, unless you, uh, I don't know, are the uh, first violin. In the local symphony orchestra and have a 4.7 and grade. And you have to average. be
0: part Colombian or, or a quarter Cherokee. Yes. That's and a big deal. Can't be Asian, though. Can't have too many Not Asians. We've got too yeah. many Asians there. <laughs> so they really did. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, they they're, just, they're too
1: smart those Asians. Can't can't have them anymore. We have to have quotas against those Asians. <laughs> Unbelievable. But no, I mean, listen, I was a fair student in high school, but I was, certainly is not what you would consider Columbia material today. Right, right. But it was in New York City in the 80s, you know. I told my parents I wanted to go to Columbia. Why we're not going to let you go.
0: And you grew up in the city, right? No, I grew up in upstate New York. Oh, you grew up in upstate in, New York. In uh, Rochester, New York.
1: So, oh, you grew up in
0: Rochester. Oh. Yeah, yeah I was there. Uh, my friends were, you know, were there because I went to Ithaca, so I had a lot sure. of friends from Rochester sure. and um, you don't know the Belancas do you? Just checking.
1: Oh, is that, that That's the mob family, right? No, I don't think maybe. They own all the know. casinos. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no.
0: No, they were very nice to me.
1: But at, hist- at, at Columbia, I was a history major, and uh, so I was going to um, go
0: to law school. That was the plan. Me, too. <laughs> and, um, that's funny. That's what I think everybody did in the 80s.
1: Yeah, that's it. I mean, you either went to, you either if you were a scientist, you went to medical school. Yeah. Or if you were a history major, an English major, you went to law school because what was the popular TV series then? Law, uh, LA Law. Right. Everybody wanted to be Harry Hamlin.
0: Yeah, not me. In my case, Michael, I wanted to Michael be Michael Tucker. Went. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Actually, I wanted to be Michael Tucker because I wanted to be sleeping with uh, Julie uh, Eikenberry. Oh yeah, she
0: was beautiful. Uh, she was kind of sexy. So
1: I mean, I had very little interest in the theater. Didn't know much about it. Really, I took. a I did take a class on. So you you were not.
0: You didn't grow up with the love of the theater.
1: I liked it because.
0: But you just liked it. Uh, yeah. That's surprising to I, me. Right? I liked,
1: uh, I, my grandmother liked operettas, and she liked Rodgers and Hammerstein. So I grew up with the music playing in the house a lot. Sure, that, me too. My
0: that's what My father used to play it all the time.
1: But I was not like a kid, I have to watch Sound of Music when it's on TV now,
0: or I have to watch Oklahoma when it comes on. It just wasn't that interesting. I didn't like any of the movies too much, but I, well, I mean, Singing in the Rain, that that stuff, but most we just listened to the yeah, shows. I and I listened we, to the albums. You know, like I said, my... That's the kind of people my parents were. They're like, you got to see this a chorus line. It's unbelievable. Right. You need to see it, and they would well, seen it, and then they took us back.
1: Right. But well, I mean, I didn't they li- knew it was important. Yeah, I didn't live in the city, so. Um, well, you lived in Jersey. Oh yeah, so you could go. I mean, I saw a couple of road shows. I think. I think the first Broadway musical I ever saw was. I was a real. I was a kid. It was in 1977, so it had been 11 years old. We were in. We were down in the city visiting my friend's parents, who had a place outside of the city, Mayapec Lake. And we went to see uh, Annie oh, at yeah. the Alvin Theater, and I sat in the last row of the of the uh, balcony,
0: and I fell in love with Andrea McArdle. Oh, me too. I've been trying to get her on the show. <laughs> oh, she's great. Yeah, uh, she, she <laughs> I went to so see pretty. her show at um, Feinstein's the oh, yeah, Fifty Four yeah. yeah, Below. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, because my sister and I were like so excited. And oh, yeah. even the Silverman was like. When are you going to go? Maybe I'll be in town. Like, I mean, who isn't excited to see Andrew McCartney before? I know. And she was,
1: and she was so cute in the little orphan outfit that she wore and sad with the dog and all that. I mean, I I suppose if my first musical had been Gypsy, I'd be gay, but it happened to be (laughs) Andrew. Right, yeah. Which is, which was
0: written by entirely straight people. Oh, I, all the people in it were straight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, again, in your book, uh, fascinating the Schubert's, the Nederlanders, and then this Nederlander who was this, this, the not, Top, he was the second tier guy, yeah. Picks up Annie, and then all of a sudden he's a player, and the, he's a even player. the Schubert's realize, yeah, we, gotta we, got, to this we guy got a competition.
1: On, and and Jimmy Niederlander took Annie sight unseen, he never saw it.
0: Like, really? He and friend. that was Mike Nichols also helped that show. I'm sorry, i, I'm, yeah. I it's all coming no, back Nick, from well, book. Nichols
1: saved that show, he saved when, the show, yeah. was when Tom in DC, Meehan, right? Uh, well, no, here's no, it was up in um, Goodspeed, Connecticut. Charlie Strauss, Tom Meehan, and Martin Sharner just died, sadly. And they were up there, and the show wasn't great, uh, but Mike Nichols saw it, and he said, "You know what you need. You need more of Miss Hannigan, because she was a minor character."
0: Uh, Dorothy Loudon. Yeah,
1: and he said, "And but Dorothy Loudon wasn't in it. Oh. Somebody else." And Mike said, "You need Miss Hannigan. You need to have a villain, and you've got the makings of one, but you haven't fleshed it out yet." And he said, "And by the way, the woman you have play Miss Hannigan, I don't think she's good enough. I know this woman that I knew in Chicago." Kind of fallen on hard times now. Uh, her name is Dorothy Loudon, and she's a saloon singer. And Mike was very specific in describing Dorothy to me in the book as a saloon singer. You got to talk to him? Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, that's so awesome.
1: A saloon singer is doesn't exist anymore because we don't have saloons. Dorothy Loudon came out of Chicago in the 30s and the 40s when you had saloons. And she wasn't a cabaret singer. She wasn't a chanteuse. She wasn't a Broadway musical kind of a singer. She was a saloon singer. She was Irish, and she was wickedly funny, black sense of humor, very black sense of humor. And she could, if you go back, I encourage your listeners to do this, find her Tony Award performance where they do Easy Street, Yeah, uh, She and Rooster, and Lily Lily St. Regis, Rooster's girlfriend. And you'll see Dorothy does this bump and grind, That I defy any actress today to be able to do that because it comes out of the Dorothy Loudon world of the saloon singing. She just moves in a way that nobody moves today.
0: It's funny the way you're describing it. It sounds, you know, I can picture it because I'm picturing Miss Hannigan, but it's very clear that this woman kind of defined the role, which they didn't even understand the way you're describing it. It's like they almost made it for her.
1: They did, which yeah. I guess they did. Because well, also, when Mike
0: Nichols came in and said, "Here's what you, you want to do,"
1: exactly. Well, I mean, a lot of writers in the theater will tell you they will write for a strong personality. You know, when Mel Brooks was doing The Producers, once they had Nathan Lane, Mel, Mel knew the lines to write for what Nathan because he knew that Nathan could deliver his kind his the rhythm of his humor. Wow. Now Nathan came up with a lot of his best lines in The Producers. Because Nathan is a very funny guy. Yeah. So in rehearsals, he would improvise things, you know. And and there was one instance where he has a speech as Max Bialystok. You know, when you're down and out and there's no one left for you, what do you say? Who the – who do I have to fuck to get somewhere in this town? And Nathan just made that up. Oh. And everybody laughed. And Mel goes – no royalties, no credit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And
1: Nathan, so this, is, this is would happen on a regular basis. He'd come up with a line, and go, no royalties, no credit. So he
0: knew right away we're keeping that line, but. But you're not going to yeah. get it. Right. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Dorothy <laughs> came up with her,
1: some of her own lines. Too. Really? Yeah. Um, she came up with one of the best lines. Tom Meehan, who wrote it, told me this. I think I put it in the book. Uh, one of her, the best lines in Annie was hers. She said, do I hear happiness in there? <laughs> wow. And I think also, when Lily St. Regis, she, she says, uh, hi, I'm Lily St. Regis. And Dorothy says, I'm trying to do a dumb blonde accent, which I'm not good at. I'm a Lily St. Regis. <laughs> Dorothy goes, what floor? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dorothy look. also told Andrea McArdle. I think this is in the book, too. i got to go back and read the no, book. That's uh, great stuff.
0: I don't think it, it wasn't in this razzle-dazzle, I don't think. Well, this, this story
1: I'm going to tell you, I think was. Because Andrea McArdle told me this. After the very first table reading. I'm not of, telling you what was in your book. <laughs> That's good. I've forgotten to be perfectly honest with you. Um, they were doing the table reading of Annie, and uh, they broke after the first act. Now, you know, Andrea McArdle's 12 years old. Yeah. Dorothy goes over to her and she says, Listen to me, kid. <laughs> if you make one move on one of my laugh lines, you're not going to live to see the curtain. <laughs> you did say, yes, I do remember that. <laughs> well, <now>. the great <laughs> thing about Dorothy Loudon, why she was so effective as Miss Hannigan, is that Dorothy Loudon in real life hated children. Oh, oh, that's right. You hate, say that. Mike Nichols it. said. She, oh, she also hates children, she right? Hates, that's why she's perfect. <laughs> wow, she was. Yeah. Great. I loved her. She was. I had so much fun with her. Boy, could she drink? I remember. Wow, that's
0: so great. I she remember. really was a drinker. Oh my oh, god, god. So totally. Cool. Yeah, I remember going than out,
1: that? Yeah, I mean, back in those days. There were some hardcore fun
0: drinkers. Yeah. Now everyone's you know going to the gym. Oh, it's so it's uh, frustrating in comedy as well. Oh, I'm but sure. The new kids, they're like, oh, we got to get home and yeah, I, mean, I got to get home and, and and go over lines. You know, we all used to go out drinking after. You of know? course, absolutely.
1: Well, I went out with Dorothy once to this old restaurant. It was called it was called Madeleine on 43rd Street. We had lunch. She liked that place. It's not some hipster restaurant. It was an old French restaurant back then, and uh, she had i think three bottles of chardonnay at lunch <laughs> oh my god and i was with her and her press agent and then she went down into the soup literally into the soup <laughs> so he said it's well my dream yeah i know <laughs> he said well we got to. Uh, we'll have to get her home so we took her home and this happened on a fairly regular basis because she lived in fred ebb's building fred Ebb, the great lyricist <sighs> and so he rang fred's buzzer fred lived above dorothy and said i have her she needs help fred would come down take her upstairs had a key to her apartment. He was used to it. Put her in bed. He was used. To, he was used to looking after Dorothy.
0: Wow. But she was brilliant. Just brilliant. When did she die?
1: She died several years ago. Now she had cancer. Just
0: recently. I mean, five, no, nine no, more, more so years. than yeah. ten years ago. though, She was
1: in a place. She was going to do Ring Around the Moon, I think, and uh, she withdrew some fake reason. I called her. I said, you know, are you are you okay? She said don't print this, but I
0: got cancer. Was it like the Jeremy Pippen where she, she said, I've eaten a lot of tuna? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Like no.
1: <laughs> you know what the best line of that, though? was? That was David Mamet's line. Did you hear this line? This was great line. I think I did, right, because
0: yeah. it was a Mamet show, right? It was a Mamet just yeah. to eat the plow.
1: And Jeremy said, well, I, I have um, mercury
0: poisoning mercury poison. because yeah. I've
1: eaten a lot of sushi. And David Mamet said, well, I wish Jeremy best of luck in his new career as a thermometer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was ridiculous. I mean, that was... What an asshole. Who... Leaves a mammoth who's upset that they're in a mammoth play. I know. And they just don't want to show up for work.
1: Oh, geez, you know, I, I, I got really this job like, he's I
0: doing got comedy up. now, and everybody's just annoyed because he's horrible. Oh, is he really bad? Yeah, yeah. But people are excited to see him, but he's not good. And you just—I mean, how can you not be mad? I mean, he just blew it. I mean, it's like—I mean, it, <laughs> does well, he know he's not good? No. Which makes him kind of a dick. Which makes sense because you know he's telling you he got mercury poison from tuna, so you're obviously and and mammoth Mamet played. It wasn't like it was like an unknown an guy home. where he's like, well, I'll take a risk with this young kid and yeah. I don't like it. But it's what the fuck. I know,
1: I know. No, he was a, he behaved like a brat. But there you go. I'm glad yeah. to hear he's doing poorly in comedy. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's it's really bad. <laughs> he
1: was arrogant. I thought.
0: Um, yeah, he he is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I think he. I think they kicked him off a lot of shows for that reason. It's possible, maybe that's why he left the Larry Sanders show as well. Could be. I was just thinking off the top of my. You know head. who
1: hated doing a play was uh, was uh, Larry Sanders. I'm what? sorry. No, um, Larry David. Larry David. Oh yes, you Larry did David. Did say that in the book. Hated. He hated being in. Uh, what was the big fish? Big no uh, fish.
0: A fish, a fish out of fish out of water. Water.
1: He hated it. He but, I, but he wrote it. Right. He wrote it, but he didn't want to be in it. Oh. And Scott Rudin who produced it said, you know. You're gonna to have to be in this play because if you're in it, we're gonna sell out. We're all gonna make a lot of money. So he, so Larry told me this. So Larry goes in the thing, and within one, he said, "What the fuck is this? I gotta to go to this fucking theater eight times a week, every night." <laughs> well, I don't know why that's a surprise. That I, well, he didn't realize, you know. And so he's like, I, he said, "I hated it. I hated it." And it, it, without fail, comes Sunday matinee. Soon as over with, got in the car to teterboro the private plane down to Florida, played golf. And would come back at the absolute last minute on Tuesday to wow. show up for his half hour. And then he was offered something like they wanted him to do it in LA at the Amundsen Theater. And I think they were doing it like six weeks.
0: And they offered him four million dollars for six weeks.
1: Nope.
0: Not yeah, interested. Money's not a I don't need it. Yeah. And I'm not interested. He told me said I'll never be in a play That's again. the kind of stuff that you hear as like an actor, you just like I'm like, ugh that's so rude. Um, you did the or the you did the same thing to the last ship. Right mm. there, where you had mentioned in your you like, or maybe you mentioned I don't know, Two Sting. You had it in an article. You're just like you, you need to be in it, or it's right. going to die. And he went in it. Yeah, and he went in it. <laughs> and I it saw died. it. With, I, yeah, I know it was horrible. <laughs> I saw it without him, and I I just hated it. Yeah, and, except because then like they one of my favorite Sting songs is the the one um, all this time, right? Which yeah. they you know which was brilliant. I'm like, oh, that's so smart. They'll put a couple of the Sting songs I like in this musical, right? but he wasn't singing it and the guy that was singing it who was okay wasn't sting it wasn't sting and and it was the, it was an issue so then I don't remember the score all that well it wasn't well, on sting it songs. wasn't it, very it, it was original right it, yeah and then but i think as it went on he stepped kept putting in more sting songs well, you know, the and sad. then he finally stepped in and know. it just wasn't happening you know, it's it was really... a stupid plot i mean it, nobody cares I that's know. the problem oh well, what
1: our town that builds ships is going out of business yeah ooh, <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> Well, it
0: sounds like fun
1: um it's funny though with people like sting and bono and the edge all these great rock and pop icons they have their moment where they write great songs right and then they continue
0: writing songs but the songs aren't as good as the old ones isn't that interesting i always wonder if you know obviously your songwriting capability seems to fade yeah which is sad in a way that you have this thing like paul mccartney even you know i mean his his older stuff just isn't and meanwhile his last two songs are actually pretty good that last album he had a song that was very good but he's been trying to make another hit for a long time. And how can, you know, a guy that put out 200 hits, well, you know, why is right. it, why is it,
1: you know, it's not a,
0: it, able to happen anymore.
1: It's also, uh, the, the, the taste of the public changes.
0: I guess that's what it is you too. Know? I mean, there's no more rock and roll. No, there really is. I've been talking about how angry I was that Whitney Houston is going into the rock and roll hall of fame. <laughs> now should, does she belong in a hall of fame in a music hall of fame? Absolutely. Yeah. But The, the rock, rock and roll, roll. Hall of
1: Fame. They got to rename it. Right. It's I ridiculous. The, uh, Death by Overdose Hall
0: of Fame. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that, that would be that them, would yeah. be a lot of. Them. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> they, they, my gosh, you'd have you would have no trouble filling that one out.
0: <laughs> I think that's what they let in about three of those people every year. <laughs> Pretty much. So
1: Fortunately, they can't be there to accept the award.
0: But um, wait, was there? A, there's so much other stuff I had to uh, what ask did you, you with about. your notes. Yeah, no, I have so many notes because uh, I don't know. I'm just so excited. It's just like, what was the major ones that I wanted to talk to you about? But um, yeah, I like
1: to build up the competition in the business in my column, and you know, it's also kind of fun. To give Andy Carl false hope, you know.
0: <laughs> I thought so for crushed? sure you were like friends with him or something, and that was false hope. There's nobody who was. There are certain years where I am just a fanboy in a way. I'm like, I have to leave the country if this person doesn't win. Uh, so far, it's never happened. Um, <laughs> Alice Ripley for Next to Normal. Oh yeah. Uh, clearly. The best performance she'll ever do, because then she was never seen again. I know. Uh, and Christine Ebersole in Grey Gardens. Oh yeah. Christina now I got I'm friends with this guy Larry Moss. I don't know if you know him. He's a famous acting teacher.
1: Yeah, I don't. I, I know.
0: Him. And we go to see lots of the plays together. He's like, so he was telling me I had to see Grey Gardens. I'm like, I'm really not interested. It just doesn't sound like my cup of tea. Right. And he goes, you must see it. So we went. We saw the first act, and he's like, what do you think? And I'm like, it's all right. Yeah. And then he's like, no, it's all set up for right. the second act. Right. Boy, was he right. I mean, what a performance, you know? She's great. And uh, and those kind of things, And like Ben Platt was that kind of special.
1: Yeah, I mean, Andy Carl was kind of robbed by Ben in a sense because Andy had opened Groundhog Day in London first and got rave reviews in, from the British critics and the American critics who went over to see it. So everyone thought Andy Carl was really set up. And he's a popular guy yeah. in the theater world. Yeah, and he's obviously very nice. Very nice. And he's
0: really talented. Yeah, I, I really mean, everything talented. I've seen him in his shitty shows... He yeah. stands up. Rocky. Yeah. You saw Rocky? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, Rocky was the funniest thing. I took David Tell, you know, the comic. Yeah, uh, yeah. We went together because I'm like, I we got to see it. Because listen to the sports stations. They say we all got to see it. <laughs> right, right. And we went. And after the first act, he's like, David, is this good? Because he doesn't go to a lot of shows. And he, I'm like, it's horrible. It's and sick. he goes, should we leave? I'm like, I've been told we need to stay for, for the, the last boxing. 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And boy, was that ever worth it. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I mean. But my nose ain't broken yet. I mean, yeah. that's the opening song. I mean, you I know. know, it's going nowhere. But that, but that stage presentation at the end—it's right. when you left that theater. If you, did you feel the same thing when you leave? It was the Winter Garden, I think. Yeah, it was. And you walk out, and people are just buzzing as if they've just seen a chorus line in 1975. Right, right, right. And when, if you were walking by, you'd be like, "I gotta see this show." I, know, right, right, I right. mean, it was such a false, <laughs> you know. Like,
1: listen, a show is never going to run if the only good part is the last 20 minutes. Yeah. It was that
0: good, though. I mean, as long as you, if you didn't pay full price,
1: it wasn't that. Hard. I paid ninety bucks. You know, for you the do, tickets, we used to do uh, when I was a kid. We would um, well, and I was starting out in this business, didn't make money. We would second act things. Remember oh. that? You know that that that, that was. A I never did
0: acting. that. I didn't, oh, I funny. didn't know how to do that. Well,
1: what you, well what you would do now? I because I'm a detail oriented person. I added a I had a touch of detail, which always worked for me. Most kids like to hang out and. then – People come in and out, and then you kind of, like, sneak in. They, they're they much stricter about it now. They can't oh, yeah. Do no, you can't, can't do, it. do it. Yeah, But back then, it's yeah, the kind of world. So people would then kind of, like, move in with the group, and then you hunt around, look for a seat, and take it quietly. What I used to do was I would pick up a discarded playbill and hold it. Oh, brilliant. So then I would never be questioned because, I it's the playbill from the first act.
0: My friend and I used to break into NBC all the time oh. uh, by just carrying clipboards <laughs> and just being like, oh, uh, you know, and then just then just walk in. <laughs> well, I, I crashed the Tony Awards one year because
1: when I got into the theater, it was because I had a summer internship with Elizabeth McCann, great Broadway producer. She did uh, Mornings at Seven, uh, Dracula, The Elephant Man. Oh, back, back in the day. Yeah. And, um, Frank Langella shit. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I have a funny story about my first experience on the job with her. Liz was great. Still alive in her late 80s, but great fun. Real, real character. I was wondering how you got in if you didn't really – uh, there you know. was a there was a job posting summer intern internship that paid like hundred bucks a week. Wow! And I had had to make some money in the summer because I, I wanted to stay in New York and I didn't want to go back to upstate New York. And my father said you have to get a job. So I went to the career services center there and intern summer paid summer internship Broadway producer. I thought, that <laughs> oh, was cool. interesting. So I got the job anyway. Uh, her secretary and I we decided we wanted to crash the Tony Awards. So what we did was we put on our tuxedos, well, rented a tuxedo, and had one back then. And Liz had five Tony Awards. So we borrowed two of her Tony's. And when we went to the oh Tony Ball, God. we were holding the that's Tony. Brilliant. And we were saying, oh, I'm so thrilled. And then they just, even after the tickets, they saw Scare and the Tony's. And then we went, Oh my God. That's, that's how I crashed the Tony Ball. Which
0: Tony was that? Which one? That was that the, uh, it would have been
1: 87. Because I I think Fences won.
0: Oh. Yeah. and Well, that was a, what musical? That's how I usually judge. Right.
1: What, what <laughs> musical won that?
0: Year? Is it, you think it's Phantom? I
1: think... No. Uh, it was... Phantom was 88.
0: Oh. I, I was so, off by one year. It was yeah. pretty close.
1: I don't know. What did win in the 80s? Because... Was it Les Mis? No. Les Mis won 85.
0: And I forgot what won in 86. Yeah. I figured you might remember since, you know, you were... It was a pretty special <laughs> night for you. <laughs> well,
1: the musicals were since a little... you had w-
0: technically won a Tony that I, year. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. It is brilliant. it was brilliant. really clever. But
1: my first day on the job... At Liz's office, it was summer, really hot. Spring. But it was a hot, hot May. And, uh, she had this English company, the Royal Shakespeare Company in town, and they're doing a play she was producing. And the lead actor was complaining to her that his air conditioning unit didn't work. And because he was English, they're not used to, you know, the hot New York summer. Oh, right. So, so she says to me, kid, go fix his air conditioning. Now I'm like I mean, I'm a history major at <laughs> Yeah, you know I, I'm not a member of Ayatsi, uh, so I thought, okay, well, it's my job. So I stopped at a Black and Decker store and I bought a screwdriver so I would look. you, know, you like, know, I knew what know I was doing. Yeah, right. So I, I knock on the door and this door opens very slowly and it's very tall, elongated man. Yeah. I said, I'm from Liz McCann's office. I'm here to fix your air conditioning. Said, it's beastly hot in here. Beastly, beastly hot. Come over there. And I walk, and I see this fetching calf of a young woman sticking out from under the sheets on his bed. Later turned out to be the leading, the ingenue in the play. Oh, my God. He was having a fling with her. He was much older Classic. than she was. <laughs> so I go over the air conditioning unit, and she's like, ah. Uh. It's so hot in here. It's beastly hot. <laughs> oh, it's really hot in here. Beastly hot. So I put the screwdriver and I. <laughs> <and> I <I'm pretending, laughs> right. Oh, on. it does. you got go, lucky. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, sir.
0: thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Now, who was that man, you may ask? Yeah. That time. was an unknown British actor by the name of Alan Rickman. Shut up. Oh, yes. He was in Lely's. Oh, in Tanjiro, my God. It's
0: beastly in hot pin. in the <laughs> That's
1: what Wow. And I say elongated because he was. I mean, he was so tall. Yeah. Elegant, you know, but he had a bit like the, I don't know, sort of a praying mantis like body. Wow. That's strange. I became friendly with him that summer. Shut up. Him all these years. Oh, that's awesome. He was a great guy. What great year guy. was that? You said that would have been 87. Summer so 87. it was just right
0: before Die Hard.
1: Yeah. Oh, it was before he's famous. Yeah. He got Die Hard because the producers saw him in this play. Oh, I love that kind that's of how, shit. That's how he got wow. to, uh, the German terrorist that he plays. How do you like that? Yeah. That's amazing. So, um, there's my Alan Rickman story.
0: I love a good Alan Rickman story. I, I did uh, love actually down here at the Village Underground. I rewrite a lot of movies and stuff and I redo them with the comics. Oh, oh that's read from fun. The script. It's fun. That's fun. And I played Alan Rickman. Uh, you, know, you do like, it with the like, accents? Like, oh, yeah. I, I was like, Oh, God, um, I uh, have to find a place overall around there. God, tell me you don't have it. a six-foot tall T-shirt wearing boyfriend. So, I don't know. I was doing the best I can, but it was uh, it was really fun. I mean, have you ever like, seen this thing called Celebrity Autobiography? Yes. I've my done. friend Rick Newman put that together originally, I believe. Right,
1: but it's some... Oh, you've done it? I've done it, yeah. They always give oh, me... The,
0: at the triad? Yeah, at the triad. It's mm-hmm.
1: fun. Uh, they they always give me the same bit, which I, I've nailed now so many times. I do... Uh, Excerpts from Kenny Loggins. <laughs> no
0: way, really? <laughs> it's That's
1: very funny, odd. <laughs> but you know the the mistake some of the actors make doing is they act it. It's only funny if you don't act it. You have to just read it straight. You can't act it out. Richard Kine can get away with it. Richard Kine does a Vanna White bit that is hysterical.
0: He's so goddamn funny. He's, he's crazy and yeah. funny. I love him. And, I love him. I'm um, so glad he's back on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, I don't yes, know if you're right. caught up. But, I'm not, no, but yeah. He moved to L.A., Cousin Stewart or whatever. You know, yeah. he, made, he moved to L.A., which makes me so happy because I don't know why they weren't using him for a while. But. He
1: does the Vanna White thing and he says, now – some people may think it's easy turning letters. Let me tell you about the time I went to turn the letter and my nail broke off.
0: <laughs> oh, um, well, he was in the original Tootsie. He played the original, in the, the one that I saw for the backers. He played the agent. The agent, right. Oh, you, you saw, did you, were you there? Oh, no, 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 I didn't mean it like that, but I'm just Like, um, no. um, and Hugh was so funny because a, remember in the play he has the, the door, the, he goes in and out the, the door, but in the, in this one, they didn't have a door yet. Right. So he's just sitting, he's, I mean, he milked it, you know, when he really? realizes who it is, yeah, yeah. it went on for like 20 minutes. Oh, he's great. <laughs> and it was really, really funny. He was a
1: very good Max But That, that
0: he- wasn't a good role. For, what they didn't, if he was in it, they would have had to beef up that. Yeah, role. it was too small for yeah. him. Too small for him.
1: He's a great guy and a very, very talented. He's yeah, I've celebi- with him a couple times. He's the only one in celebrity celebrity autobiography who get, could get away with acting it. It's much better if you just read it straight. Yeah. You know, because the, the writing is so insipid, you don't want to adorn it with anything. You right. just want to. So I just know. Yeah, no, I've never been
0: straight. to one. I know my friend always told me to go, and, but he, because it's his, he, I think he owns that theater to or try he used it. to. Yeah, yeah. I think it's gone. He used to, um, own catch rising star oh sure yeah yeah and he used to manage pat benatar oh my God. You know? <laughs> so but he moved to la and uh, he's actually trying to do a documentary on Catcherizing star and oh really that's interesting yeah i thought it would be interesting too but nobody seems to care yeah you know it's,
1: it's funny i wanted to do a book on um when i finished razzle dazzle they wanted a second book from me and i wanted to do a book on robert stigwood do you remember who he is yeah wait don't tell me um did he just saturday night fever he did okay he was the producer he did another one, right? Sure, yeah. He, 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 he produced the original Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita. So he discovered Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. Well, they're good. He discovered the Bee Gees. Wow. He discovered Cream and Eric Clapton. Shut up. He discovered John Travolta and then put him in Saturday Night Fever. Oh, and then he did Grease, favorite. right? Yeah. And then he did two huge flops. I can't remember what they were, but they were terrible movies. And he was gone. And he lived to the rest of, most of the rest of his life. He just died about a year ago. He died about a year ago. Yeah. I did a whole tribute. Yeah. But he was, he just disappeared and he lived for most of the rest of his life on his yacht (laughs) because he was a tax exile, right? So he couldn't live in England because they, he owed so much in taxes. Wow. But he was also a total hedonist. I mean, I once interviewed him. I went over to the Waldorf Astoria where he had an apartment and (laughs) he had an apartment
0: at the Waldorf. That's unbelievable, (laughs) right?
1: Uh, it was the same tower where Frank Sinatra and Cole Porter had their apartments. Wow. Uh, And the butler answered the door and it was 11 o'clock and he was in his bathrobe and his butler brought uh, on a silver tray, crystal glass, a bottle of Bacardi and Coke. And then he would just – I mean I'm drinking wine in the morning here. Um, well, it's your technical it's my, evening. It's my cocktail. So that's all right. And then he just proceeded to drink about seven rum and Cokes during the course of the interview. Ugh. He was a total hedonist. He – Marshall Brickman, great comic writer. Uh, Andy Hall. Movie. Yeah, right. Yeah. Marshall lived in his building, San Remo. This is in the 70s. And Marshall was on the board, the co-op board. And Marshall had to go to Robert Stigwood and thank you and tell him, um, Robert, you know, we've had some complaints from the neighbors. Uh, you have to have, to stop, stop having all those male orgies on your, uh, balcony. <laughs> Really? So I thought it would be fascinating to write about this guy. I was going to call it Robert Stigwood, the man who invented the 70s. Because yeah. so much of popular culture was Robert Stigwood. So right. And there were so many interesting st- – and he was fascinating. He was, a, he was a a middle-class guy from Australia who was an accountant. And he created himself into one of the biggest moguls of the entertainment industry at that time. And I thought this is a great way in to write about pop culture in the 70s before AIDS. Yeah. And this is what life was like in New York City and yeah. London and Hollywood <laughs> – Pre AIDS. And you have all of these great characters. You've got the Bee Gees and you've got Andrew Lloyd Webber and you've got John Travolta and you've got these movies and all this kind of stuff. And I was lucky, lucky enough to know a lot of these people who he discovered. So I knew I could get to everybody. And I, I was trying to get to Stigwood. He had, not, he was now living in Ascot. And so I had a number of people. I called him. Somebody gave me his home number. And this French guy answered the phone. Mr. Stigwood is rusty. He will call you back. If This is Alan Rickman again. No, no it's call. not. It's, <laughs> a, it's Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> and he never called me back. So I said, you know, I said to Andrew Lloyd Webber, I said, Andrew, would you make a call and tell him I'd just like to come meet him and tell him I'm Your interested. You're friends with Andrew Lloyd Webber yeah, like yeah. that? You're like, listen, I need a favor. <laughs> Pretty right. much. And he said, yeah, I'll do that. Ah, sure, sure. So he calls me. He said, you know, I, the French guy answered. And he said, Mr. Stigwood is rusty. He will call you back. And he didn't call him back. I had Tim Rice. I said, Tim, would you call him? Tim calls. The guy says, Mr. Stigwood is resting. I had Clive Davis call for me. I had Barry oh. Manilow call for oh me. Oh, my God. I had Barry Gibb call for oh me. Oh, my goodness. And they all got the same exact answer. And they had all lost touch with him. And he just, he just completely disappeared. He was a total recluse.
0: Must have made time. you feel a little better, though, if all those guys couldn't get in touch with him. Well, but either. then I thought
1: this makes him even more fascinating. What has his life been like? Yeah. To have been at the center of popular culture. For one decade and then for 30 years. And he, and he dropped everybody. People rarely saw him. You know, he just lived like he was all, almost like a Howard Hughes. Yeah. And then he died. And I thought, oh, this is even better because, you know, they're dead. They can't sue. So I can say whatever I want to about. Him. Yeah. But, you know, Simon and Schuster, my publisher, I'm very fond of. They ran it by the marketing people, and they were like, "Nobody knows who Robert Stewart is."
0: Well, no, of course, nobody knows who he is. That's what makes such a good book I or know. movie. Now,
1: the marketing people said, "No, nope, can't sell it. We don't know what." I said, "Yeah, but it's a rediscovery of somebody." Yeah, and look at all the stuff that he did. And the I maybe mean, the title just has to be used. The guy that Robert made Stewart, the, 70s. the man who invented the seventies.
0: No, nope, can't do it. What the hell kind of what kind of company is that? <laughs> That's not forward thinking, is it? SRO. Are records? these the people that passed over Harry Potter? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: But they did take Razzle Dazzle, so I can't complain no, Right, right, right. And they've taken my second book, which will be out in December.
0: Boy, that's uh, really frustrating, I guess, because I was—I did a whole podcast on Stigwood because—did uh, you really? Yeah, I was fascinated by him. Once I, when he died, I was, you
1: and you talked to Andrew and Tim and
0: Clive and Barry. And well, in theory, <laughs> I, <laughs> no, I—I I, I just called um, David Tell and he had some comments and he's like, "Yeah, Stigwood's all right, you know." <laughs> but um,
1: yeah, no, he was—he was fast and he just lived larger than life. You know, he had so much money. Yeah. I
0: mean that. There it is. There's the story. When everybody it's likes seven, stories like that, you know, a lot.
1: And I'm fascinated by popular culture before AIDS. Just you know, just the way people were living their lives before AIDS hit, and well, so many entertainment people.
0: Again, in your book, you talk about the re. Uh, I get words wrong. The, the restoration of Times Square of Times Square, yeah. and you know how Broadway is the reason it happened. And I always think it's you know it says it basically. Ed Koch came in. And said, "Let's do this," but then it just didn't work out. No, but he tried. He tried, kind of, kind of tried. Well, he got a committee together, yeah. Which is yeah. what do you have to do. I always think of like Obama with the like health insurance. Like it's not a good plan, but somebody has to start the ball rolling. Yeah, yeah. It takes time. It takes time, right? So. I
1: mean, Kotz was fighting a lot of battles, you know. I mean, the city was. Well, he had to. Right. I mean, it was was a mess
0: where he took it over from. Yeah. The city was
1: bankrupt and, you know, the tax base was fleeing. Manufacturing jobs, we we were losing those. So he had a lot of battles to fight. Times Square just was not a priority. And there was a thinking on the part of many people that, look, Times Square, it's a sleazy place. It's always been a sleazy place. It's. Just going to be a sleazy place. There's nothing you like, about
0: that's it. almost the allure of why people Partly. come to New York. Yeah, exactly. Right.
1: You know, I mean, it but is they were what mistaken. Right. Because
0: right. now they really Disney. I mean, just. Yeah, it's gone a little
1: too much in the other direction.
0: Yes, yeah, it has. And mm. I'm still, I still get nervous. I talk about it all the time, walking between 7th and 8th Avenue and 42nd. Not only is it super crowded, but the memory. Of what it used to be still messes me up. Oh, yeah. That block. Well, if you Even think, though I'll go down 43rd, but 42nd still creeps well, me out. Well,
1: 43rd was a real sleazy and was,
0: block. Oh, it was sleazy too. But 41st – That's where that Niederlander thinner. oh, no, that was no, 41st.
1: 41st was really – That was, disgusting was the – really, uh, that, that
0: just smells like urine.
1: That was the real yeah. <laughs> sle- sleazy block of that time. Yeah. You know, but they had all those SRO hotels and – but it was interesting. When I was doing that book, I did have that kind of feeling, well – Eh, You know, the old Times Square did have its charm, you know. Well, sure. Well, I said this to um, a guy, I can't remember his name now, Sid uh, Rosenbaum. And he was a real tough lawyer. And he was on uh, the mayor's midtown committee. And uh, he was charged with policing uh, Times Square, trying to make it safe. Yeah. And I said that to him. And I said, you know, a lot of people long for the days of the – Old Times Square, because it was real New York, you know, now it feels like Disneyland. And he said, You know, that is something that um, white people like you, who didn't have to really live in Times Square, think. He said, But I can tell you the number of times we found pieces of women's bodies wrapped up in garbage bags oh my. in hotel rooms, and they're prostitutes whose identities you'll never know, killed by their pimps, killed by a John. He said, Those are the people who really suffered in Times Square. Not you people who were on your way to Port Authority and ducked in for a quick <laughs> peep show.
0: You that know, was but me. the people who, yeah, yeah. right.
1: <laughs> but the people who had to live and work there, and this is what happened to them. Wow! So he said it was not a safe environment.
0: No, it, no, it clearly wasn't safe. Yeah. I don't think but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's but it's, but again, in your book, it's that New Amsterdam Theater that seemed to start everything. Yeah, well, right? Disney when, and Then they when, rebuilt the Lion King for that, and then they it did just, it for Lion
1: King. Disney paid no money for that theater. I mean, Michael Eisner, but they
0: got like a fifty-nine year lease, right?
1: Yeah, but Michael <laughs> Eisner told me I think Disney paid. The whole thing to co- the cost of refurbishing it was about 50 million, but Disney only shelled out 4 million dollars <laughs> because the city gave them so much. This many- Eisner is an absolute master of everything he well, does. But his attitude was, listen, if you want to make it worth my while to do it and take the risk, I'm not going to risk 50 million on it, but if you want to give me tax breaks and tax subsidies, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So, that's how it was restored.
0: Um there's a couple things other things I want to uh, ask you some questions about particular plays. Sure. Mm. um <laughs> one is beetlejuice did you like it because i liked it a lot
1: uh no i didn't care for it, it was really loud and garish and yeah it's not, not
0: i thought it was it. good i thought the songs were good uh which also leads me to believe since i i don't remember who did it wasn't the same guy that did matilda was it
1: no, uh, no.
0: um Minchin. that was yeah Tim. Okay. he's
1: very good he did groundhog day but that's right, that's
0: right. Yes, that was but very one of my Oh, and that's songs. the other thing I was going to say about... Um Andy Carl again. You really are the president of the Andy Carl. Uh, well, program. I've seen, it's, I can't get away from him. Right. So we go to see Pretty Woman. He wasn't even in it when we, I mean, he was. He knew you were coming. But, but yeah, he, he somehow got in it. He said my stalker he, he is was coming tonight. I'm not yeah, showing up for work. I, we, he wasn't supposed to be in it when he got the tickets for me and my mother, you know, like, and then all of a sudden he was, he's in it. And I'm like, this isn't even possible right. because he, he came in later, right? Yeah, they, he did come in later. So but the thing about that show and those movie, musicals that they make because mm-hmm. I enjoy seeing those things and seeing what they're gonna do it How or mess it up or whatever. Up, yeah. But and that's where Tootsie I didn't have a problem with but you know, you're all when they put in the scene with Julia Roberts and she's they closed the box yeah. you know and stuff yeah. that scene didn't work yeah in that play, but it was necessary because everybody's waiting for it.
1: Yeah, but that's the thing and
0: that's the problem. If you're
1: waiting for it it's it's by definition, if you know it's coming it's going to be anticlimactic,
0: but that's where I thought Beetlejuice did okay because they had three points where you needed to see, and I thought they did it well. I yeah, I thought I mean, it,
1: I didn't really; it didn't do much for me. But
0: you think Music Man will just be box office gold because I know they're moving it out of that theater for that?
1: Yeah, Hugh Jackman's going in. Uh, yeah, listen, Hugh Jackman. You know, there are very few. There are very know. few people whose name alone just will give you a fifty. Which 50 million is odd because
0: down. Sutton Foster is. Just as big in this community. Yeah, but. And yet it doesn't matter, she, right? Yeah. She
1: doesn't transcend Isn't that odd? things the way Hugh Jackman does. I mean, everybody
0: knows Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Everybody. Well, he's a movie star. And he
1: lives across the street from
0: me. He does? Yeah. Oh. Do you my know him? Yeah, of course. Oh. He seems like an awesome dude. <laughs> like, his- and please tell me that's the case because I'll die he's if a- like, he's not cool. <laughs>
1: first-class asshole no <laughs> he is exactly what you think he would be Do you know you how many times him?
0: i have to sit through kate and leopold <laughs> right <laughs> no
1: what you see what the personality you see is the personality that's, that's
0: all i want to he has hear. a
1: little i would say this he has a sharper sense of humor in private
0: than you would see in. Public. and again that's what i was hoping to hear <laughs> he's got yeah
1: he's, he's got a bring him down
0: here sarcastic. bring him down to the shows no it's fun everybody comes down here it's fun
1: Comedy sell, well. I'm saying. Yeah. um I've never been, I gotta
0: come. Yeah, you gotta come. I'll tell you, I'll my, my next show. In fact, um, I was supposed to in February I do the Jusky Awards. Uh I just give out awards and um but I didn't get it. They're doing a TV taping oh. next door, so I didn't get a spot this month. But I'll have one next month. I'll try to come. Yes, you will. I will <laughs> let you know. Thank you. Um what was the other oh, did you see what did you think of King Kong?
1: Uh I avoided King Kong because I did know I know the producer and she invited me to see the puppet one afternoon. And uh I sat and saw the puppet, and the puppet was
0: impressive. The puppet just yeah. is the best.
1: And then they sang a song, and I thought, nah, I didn't. I don't need to see the rest of this. The puppet is it what was I It was maybe want to the
0: sing. worst music, lyrics, dancing, acting I've ever seen in a play. But oh, yeah. that puppet, was, the puppet and was, those people that worked it, they got they got a standing ovation. They did those yeah. puppeteers. Yeah. That was amazing. Otherwise, it was horrible. Yeah, I no. mean, just did the,
1: no, they, they they did something. Uh, I saw the scene where King Kong breaks out of his cage in New York. They did that scene for me. I thought, this puppet is really impressive. Yeah. Amazing.
0: The puppet. And the
1: way the nose moves and eyes and all that. Kind of, and then the girl came out and she sang the song. And I thought, eh, that's enough.
0: Yeah. You, you did an article about finding the perfect Faye or whoever the, her right. name is in the show. And they didn't get it. <laughs> they, <laughs> they messed up.
1: Yeah. I don't, I remember. I think I saw her sing the song, but she didn't make an impression. No, of she was
0: not good. And I saw, in fact, uh, the girl in Groundhog Day was not good either. I, I don't know her. if it's a friend of yours or anything, but... I don't remember her. She was working with Andy Carl.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> of course. Well, Andy Carl was one of the puppeteers. You, you didn't know that. <laughs> no. He was, he was in the What's show. What's he
0: up to now? <laughs> He's going to do something new, right? Because I, I think know. his wife was in Pretty Woman as well. Orfe. Yeah, I, I didn't know how to pronounce it. She's That's hilarious. <laughs> Orfe.
1: Oh, Orfe. oh, She's Boy, when she set her sights on Andy, she just like obliterated uh, clearly, every woman who was ever in his life. It's
0: gone. It's very clear, because if you go to her website she's kind of hot, Um yeah, and I troll stuff like that. Um It's just pictures of her and him in love, you yeah. know, pictures. Which when I see women do that, I know I know what they're up to. <laughs> right. My cousin Frankie has a wife like that. You like, see those she, hooks? He doesn't. Yeah, she they're doesn't is let him go. <laughs> way. All the pictures are like we're so in love. That's, that's and he's it exactly. He's just like, yeah, hey, we are you going to do? You know, it's all right. You know, I also
1: <laughs> remember seeing in that scene I watched in King Kong that guy who plays the villain, the uh, promoter, right? And that was I thought, oh god, this performance is too broad. Yeah, because I think too broad. But the the guy who's really great in that part is Charles Grodin in the 1976 remake of King Kong the Jeff Bridges and uh,
0: uh, Jessica
1: Lange. Jessica Lange, right? Yeah. Charles Grodin is hilarious.
0: He's good in everything, or he was, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't seen him in a long time. Well, I think he's much older now and stuff. But my, he was the. Sh- I mean, his dry, wit, like um, something like seems like old times, mm-hmm. where he. I mean, it like even when when Chevy Chase is under the bed and he's just kind of. Vamping, and he's so so so. What are you, what are you telling me that uh, that that Nick w- was here, or that you? you know, but he just keep even just you don't even see. He's just talking. It's hilarious. I don't even know whether those were the actual lines, or if he's and just, they probably just let him go. Oh, he's
1: great, and he's he's really good. I can't remember the part. He the name of the character he plays, but he plays the guy who's leading the exploration for oil on the island. Then he sees King Kong, and he realizes this is going to be my ticket to the top. And he told me this story. Dino De Laurentiis, who produced that movie. Dino yeah. was an Italian
0: film producer who did all those big blockbuster kinds of movies. He did blockbusters and not blockbusters. Didn't he do Firestarter as well? Yeah, you I know? think, yeah. <laughs> like and in the 80s, it, it yeah, not so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. and
1: uh, that, at that point, Charles Grodin considered himself a leading man. Yeah, he and, was. Uh, yeah, well, and so De Laurentiis offered him the part of the villain. Oh, a- and Charles Grodin said, well, you know, Dino, I'm uh, I'm a leading man. I, I don't play supporting <laughs> lines. Charlie, Charlie, listen to me, listen to me. The leading man part is a boring part, very boring, very too boring for you. It's the bad guy, Charlie. That's the world that people remember you by. And Groen said he was absolutely right. Yeah, and he said he had so much fun. They had a blast making that movie. One, because you get to hang out with Jessica Lange when she's
0: yeah in a ba- bathing suit most of the back time. Back then, yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah.
1: I had a huge crush on her as a kid.
0: I think we all did. Yes, and also and when even she's just in, from Tootsie.
1: And when she's oh my god, I love her <laughs> in that. But this is pre Tootsie. Yeah. But when King, she's in King Kong's hand, and he starts with his finger. Taking her beaded dress off and then it falls away. Yes, and you see her breast. That may have been the first female breast I saw in my uh, life.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think of the first one I did was might have Could been, been Melanie. Bo- might have been Melanie Griffith actually in, uh, in what? Body double.
1: Oh yeah. For me, it was either.
0: And that was five years later, so I don't know. And I was I'm I older think, than you, so that how me it pathetic was is that? Lange,
1: and then of course <laughs> Bo Derek in ten.
0: Oh my God, but, she was. She was a ten. She was. I mean, they found the right person. <laughs>
1: Corn braids though, cultural appropriation. Couldn't get away with that today. (laughs) No,
0: you could not. Boy, but don't. I remember my friend when that movie came out, he told me, he told me the premise one day we were just walking to school. And I'm like, that sounds like the greatest movie of all time. Really? Just the way he was describing it to me. And it was just, you know, if you're a kid and then I had no idea that Dudley Moore was a genius. You know, this is is before I knew who he was and before obviously Arthur, which is
1: one of the great movies of all time.
0: steve gordon and there's another genius that died right after i mean what he could have done yeah. after that it's so sad he
1: was wasn't he in advertising i think he i don't know i think
0: he would he used to write for like different strokes and stuff like that so maybe he was and then he was writing for tv what did and he then, die of i don't know a heart attack i think he's just one of those guys that just you know where there's just like what what happened you know especially the guys who died in their like 50s or 40s it's just weird you know you don't know why yeah. I mean, if it's not AIDS or something back then, but some people just, you never know. I don't know. I was. Uh, Appshoot, unfortunately. I
1: was uh, studying in London in college, and we went to see a play, a Shaw play called You Never Can Tell. And this man came in, sat down in front of me, and I recognized him. And at the intermission, I said, You were the butler in Arthur, weren't you?
0: It was John Gilgu. And he says, some people remember my Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> he won an Oscar for that too, he and he did. was brilliant. He was I mean,
1: fantastic.
0: I mean, I, I think I know every line. It's like, usually it one not to go to a bowling alley to meet someone of your yours. See you in prison. See you in prison. Good luck in prison. That's Good luck what. In it, prison.
1: Yeah. And I love Barney Martin. He played. Oh
0: my god, Lies He's the father, father, right? And then he played Seinfeld's father too. Which, right. So I, yeah, Seinfeld's father. Right. Yeah. I just, I just remember him from like, oh, it's the guy from Arthur. Right. And now I, everybody knows it's the guy from Seinfeld.
1: Right. But there's that great scene where Dudley Moore calls Liza Manelli to say I got to end the relationship and then
0: they cut to her <laughs> part he's I crying <laughs> <laughs> I just have to be alone <laughs> yeah. brilliant just yeah brilliant. and just um, what was the, the the main one he goes um, oh dad right he's like so I take it this bum will be calling you? yeah everything's cool oh, do, oh no get <laughs> no, another I'm, one I'm fine. I'm you fine. sure yeah You want something else? No. no. Um, Like, I take it this bum will be calling it. Dad, he's a millionaire. You have my permission to marry him. (laughs) Yeah, he was fantastic. And then when John Gilgood comes in too, if you and your undershirt could step two paces backwards, I could enter this dwelling. That's right. (laughs) That movie, every line is great. And that's why when they redid it, I was very upset. Yet, I liked Russell Brand. And I thought using a woman as Hobson actually was going to be okay. It was Helen Helen Mirren. Mirren. Yeah. And they, but they messed, they, again, they did kind of what you were talking about with Tootsie, is they used a lot of the lines. Right. And I know anybody who's watching that movie just doesn't care about the original. It's younger kids and they probably have never seen The brains. but and it wasn't the worst movie I've ever seen. But again, I have two ladies that I don't know whether I'd give up a billion dollars for as a, as an actual straight man, like Liza Minnelli. I, I don't know. If I'd give up a billion dollars for it, it was always trouble. Yeah. like her and Marsha Mason, I didn't, you know, they they still were good, but they, they weren't who I needed it to be for my money, you know, like of, <laughs> of who I would give up things for. for sure. I didn't like Marsha Mason's short haircut. Nice. I liked her, preferred her with longer hair. <laughs> right, right. And now I appreciate her more because she was very funny on Gilbert's podcast. And that's the funny thing. Um, what's a great example of uh, somebody who you? Oh, uh, Hillary Clinton was on Howard Stern. Oh yeah, and all of a sudden she became this. Wow, she had done that.
1: Well, didn't Howard Stern said if she were on the campaign trail the way she was on my show, she would have been elected.
0: Yeah, because the
1: thing about Trump is.
0: Yeah, you're the, you're he's a Trump the guy, right? Yeah, that was so Trump. surprising when I heard, because you're a theater guy. I, I was like, there's no way. And then when I started listening to the radio show.
1: Well, Len and I have to, we take, you know, we have to
0: disagree on things sure. because you need
1: attention. But now I'm a Republican. I was always, I'm from upstate I've New York. I've been a, a Republican
0: now. my whole life. Yeah, uh, mostly from, uh, I became because of Michael J. Fox and family ties.
1: But I, I, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, was a, I was a reluctant Trump voter. I'll tell you why I voted for Trump. I wasn't going to vote for him. Uh, I went to my polling station in the West Village. And uh, I was going to write in Dwight D. Eisenhower because <laughs> there's no way I could vote for Hillary Clinton. But I was going to write in Dwight D. Eisenhower. Now, on the list, the roles has your name and then your affiliation. So in the West Village, it goes dem, 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 then rep. And that's always me. I just, I just leap off the page. So I'm i was looking
0: at you because – me too. at the same time. Yeah, with it's my neighborhood. We're dem, People dem, get angry. Dem, dem, your neighbors get – yep, I so, had the same. So
1: I'm leaning over it and signing the thing. And this woman, one of these they old get- – Pissed. One of these old hippies, you know, yep. lived in the village in a rent-controlled apartment all these years, still has birds nesting in her hair from Woodstock. <laughs> yep. You know? She leans over. She goes, you're a Republican. Yeah, okay. oh. And she goes, you disgust me. So then I got in the voting booth.
0: I thought, fuck you, you
1: old hippie. Donald J. Trump. That is why that's a, why I voted for exactly him. what happened
0: to me. <laughs> I mean, this is why – I mean, I must have done three or four podcasts saying he's going to win by a landslide because well, – that's right. Because – there's all guys like us who we can't have a conversation with anybody and tell them you know they they just weren't listening. Right. Right. And all these people the, the pollsters they were asking questions but people weren't saying. Right. They weren't being honest because people were afraid. Afraid and they were like you disgust me. You know like every that's what you were going to yeah. get. Yeah, exactly. So there was all these secret voters. <laughs> I Which know, was so obvious to you and me. I know a lot of people on Broadway who voted for Trump. They
1: would never admit it in a million years.
0: That's what I'm saying. And, like, and that's why they didn't. nobody was able to talk about it. So when I went to the polls, I was undecided. Right. But I vote in the same district as Trump and he cut in the line. And then I was furious and I voted for Hillary. No. Did you? <laughs> I, swear, I did what you did. I did it out of spite. Like, I was so angry. I was well, we really canceled, undecided. We canceled each other out. Uh, clearly. There. The spite <laughs> vote. That's what, that's what we had. But it's funny. Like today um, – I know one of the news stories is the the Palestine thing. He's, he's trying to make peace in the Middle East. It's brilliant. I mean, it's just. I mean, if that if that were to work out, then what do you do? Look, like, I mean, you he know, somehow was able to work that out. I don't
1: think there's a big strategy at work here. But so far, if you just judge, if you put aside the personality yeah. and the fact, you know, all that my, he's not
0: presidential. Oh
1: my god! I had all my friends over at NPR. They're just like did you hear what he said yeah it's not presidential i said get he's not presidential okay live with it but you know how's your 401k doing what's the unemployment rate how's the economy there's doing? there's
0: some good things i feel i like the four-year experiment of having an outsider but i i don't know whether i would like it to continue well I've i do to get used to it well i know that's what i saying. i mean how many times did i have to tell people i'm like listen the, the russian investigation is nothing. the impeachment you're you're missing the point. If you want him out, Vote find him. somebody to replace yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Spend your time wisely. Don't do this in front of the people that are already angry and stuff where you're not finding anything. Right. Find a candidate. So right. scour the country. You can't find some, some two two candidates, Elizabeth Warren
1: and, and Bernie Sanders. So I say, uh, by the way, we're taking away your health care plan and you're gonna, we're going to put you all on Medicare and you're going to have to wait two years for a hip replacement. Too bad.
0: I, I don't know what they're – what they're thinking is it's it's driving me crazy because i'm just like if you're so angry just find somebody to i like bloomberg so i might go that direction i really yeah. like him but um i don't i don't see I, the, I wouldn't pick anybody i don't like anybody else i don't see though
1: you know where the energy in the democratic party now is it is around elizabeth warren and bernie sanders bernie sanders really unleashed it and a big chunk of the party has moved very far to the left and really wants to try socialist experiment i don't see those people rallying around a billionaire
0: they well, hate that's, billionaires I, that's another billionaire from manhattan exactly yeah that's just you not know, gonna happen either so i'm saying there's no he's <clears throat> gonna win again and, and old joe biden i mean you know where am i
1: Hampshire, yeah, clearly Vermont, yeah, yeah that's not going well either so i mean, I mean uh,
0: it's just it's just it's what bothers me it's just like i mean there's no one else the only person you can't find one other person that's what they should have been spending their time on the only person who can defeat trump is trump and he's quite capable of defeating yeah. himself. You know, I mean, I like the whole Jesus. Bolton
1: thing is to have Bolton testify. Now, you know, Mitch McConnell had this thing brilliantly played out. No witnesses, quick trial, ancient history, move on to the election. Yay. Boom. Over. Done with. Well, the White House is sitting on John Bolton's memoir, and they didn't tell Mitch McConnell. They should have gone to him and said, uh, Mitch, you've got to be prepared. This memoir's here. It's in the White House. It's probably going to leak. McConnell would have factored it in. He would have laid out a plan to protect himself and the Republicans against it. But he was totally broadsided Blind, by yeah. it. He was blindsided by it. And so now he may have to call uh, uh, um, uh, Bolton as a witness. So what does Trump do? He insults Bolton. <laughs>
0: I mean, It's so that, nuts. The
1: guy may come on and say, yeah, you held up aid for a quid pro quo. What you did was totally illegal and I was appalled by it and you're an appalling person. And, you know, he might have – Bolton might – testify in a different way that's not going to hurt you yeah. if you don't come out and say ah he's a backstabbing I lying Biden like a man. <laughs> you know,
0: I don't know <laughs> this whole thing is a disaster I don't, this is why I, um, I I don't know I don't know what to say anymore about it it's just so crazy
1: well let me tell you being in talk radio now
0: yeah every you day have to Len- do this every day by the way that's the other thing oh go ahead sorry
1: every, uh, Len and I every day we thank God for Donald Trump if we were doing a four hour talk radio station Hillary Clinton were president we'd be talking about Benghazi I feel like Bill Maher feels
0: similar Absolutely (laughs) right. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Absolutely, Steve Summers used to say on the fan. You know that guy? Um, Yeah. He used to say the only thing that would have been better, like when one of the teams would win, would be a loss because it's much more interesting. Radio.
1: Absolutely. Listen, my columns, my best columns are about flops. Yeah. They're about disasters. They're about Spider Man.
0: And that's the other thing too with with your columns, which are so entertaining because they're funny and they're good and you know and you know interesting, always interesting for me. For me, and there's only Friday now. Or it do, yeah. Twice well,
1: I was gonna when I got the job hosting the morning radio show on Wor, I was gonna leave the post. I mean, I'd done twenty seven years, twenty six years as a newspaperman, and always covering Broadway. And I was just kind of, I was done. You know, I'm not as because I don't even know how you can see a show I and be on the morning I, radio. I don't. I, don't. Subs- I, I do matinees. That makes sense. Yeah, I get up 4.30 in the morning. So yeah, I know. I to got to at eight thirty. So I don't. I don't go out at night anymore. Um, which is fine because I'm older now, and you know,
0: I, you don't look old. Oh well, you, I look much older than you <laughs> <laughs> so you look like a young guy, you got good hair
1: Oh well, that's true. I good, swim good every complexion day. I swim every day and I drink white wine
0: I'm <laughs> telling s- you somebody- oh, you swim every day. I every heard day every that is the best exercise yeah.
1: Somebody once asked me I'd stopped drinking for a while in my life for like a year, and then I went to Europe and I thought, ah, i gotta have some wine so I thought all right i'll I'll just drink wine now I'll stop martinis and all that kind of stuff and so I've been a wine drinker, and uh somebody said to me. Once, boy, you look really good. I said, "Yeah, I'm drinking again."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen. As long as you're keeping healthy, in the other way, you know, white wine is wine is fine. You know, whatever it is, like,
1: I'm, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm, I should be. Ha- I should have my NPR tote bag since I drink white wine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let me just ask you some other questions about sure. uh, again in the uh, chess, the uh, you know, the legendary, mythical, yeah. magical uh, Broadway show the that the everyone talks time. about. One of the great scores, and yet it just can't make a move book, why yeah. do they keep trying to bring it back because the score is times. so good
1: the, the uh, Benny, Benny and uh, the, ABBA guys. the ABBA guys yeah. their score is so good and Tim Rice's lyrics are great uh, but you know the book never worked it was too convoluted originally and that was just hopelessly out of date I mean it's the Cold War oh
0: was. yeah I guess uh, you know it's the, although maybe it could come back because there is more of a Cold War again, yeah. in a way. I,
1: I saw a couple versions of it over the years, and it's
0: never worked. Because I heard they were just coming back with it again. You know, there was always talk about it. There's always talk about it, and the book just never. Especially works. since is like, you know, with Mama Me and the just what an unbelievable success right. of that. It made sense to right, but bring the book back the just, book just doesn't.
1: It just doesn't work now. Michael Bennett was going to direct it
0: originally. Yeah, no, that's it, all in your book. It's yeah. very fascinating.
1: And Michael Bennett's concept of he wanted to be he wanted it to be like a James Bond thriller. Very yeah, slick, that's, yeah, that's what it is. fast-paced, sleek,
0: cool, like James Bond kind that of. That was thing. my other question for you. It seems like you like Bond. You no, read a lot it. of articles on Roger Moore oh, when he died, which made me I very happy because me too. And you actually talk about this one scene, which I have a, a, a clip of. I will get another one. Of these. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One more. Um, this is from For Your Eyes Only because you were talking about the scene that he didn't like to kill that guy. Oh, yeah. And I always scene. play this um, this music. I, mean, I hope it's not too loud. Let me see if I get it. It's
1: a great score by Tom (laughs) Conti.
0: This is the scene with with, Yeah. I like that. Yes. (laughs) Like and that's when when he's gonna kick the car over. I believe you left this with (laughs) Ferrara. That's what he's gonna say right now. (laughs) You left this with (laughs) Ferrara, I believe. And then he kicks him. Yeah, love it. But you said Roger Moore he didn't like that. This guy deserved it, oh and then he has to break the whip at the end. Had no head for heights uh, Wasn't he the best?
1: He was. I. I, I was
0: so happy when you write I about that the, all the time because I love Bond too.
1: Well, well, I had a great couple of great moments with Roger Moore.
0: Uh, I was oh, asked, you got to meet
1: him? Oh, he's terrific.
0: Oh, that's so exciting. Uh,
1: I'm a member of the Players Club, and they asked. They gave him uh, a pipe night, which is the highest award that Players
0: Club gives a fellow player, and Roger is a player. Was that the one that Telly Savalas was in? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> you get your players. Do you like action? you like 21 different ways to win? <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> so they asked me to host the evening with Roger Moore. Wow. So I was really flattered. I'd never met him before. And he arrives, and they introduced me and said, Michael, he's going to be the uh, host tonight. And he said, you can say anything you want to about my acting.
0: <laughs> Isn't that great? You totally, I, totally I seem can't. to get it. And I, it's I, unbelievable. But what I said is – the opposite of Daniel Craig. I know. He <laughs> takes himself so fucking seriously. Yeah. All
1: that brooding, you know. Roger, Even Roger, though he's goddamn brilliant. I know. But Roger but, but, was like, yeah, you can say anything you want to about my acting. And what I, what I said was I said, you know, when I was a little kid, I saw this movie. Didn't know what it was about. It was called Moonraker. <laughs> and here was this guy in a private plane opening scene. He had this great blue blazer on. And he looks so elegant and so effortless. And he's putting smooth.
0: his uh, hand up that girl's leg. Yes. And he hired <laughs> Mister Button. My ears will <laughs> yes, <that's>, pop. <laughs> right. And then he gets thrown out of a plane without a parachute. Isn't it? When you're a little boy, isn't that the greatest oh, thing thrilling. you've ever seen? You, you're like, how is he going to get out of this? For me, it was uh, the Spy Who Loved Me. I'm right, two years old. Didn't yeah, you? that's
1: right. So and, and it's all over the cliff, and the parachute. Same board. thing. Yeah. So I said, I said, so you know, what was really impressive about this guy was here's this gigantic action picture. With all the bells and whistles of a Bond picture, explosions and villains and gadgets all going off. And yet none of it upstages Roger Moore yeah. because he is a movie star. Yeah. He is a movie. The, he has the, the, see that face, those blue eyes. That is a movie star. And no matter how big the special effects, none of them is bigger.
0: What a than great Roger thing to say. Moore. He must have been so happy.
1: And then I said, and then I, I took a, then I took a film class in college and i watched this movie called north by northwest oh, and i said nice. i'd never seen it. and i said i said you know what Cary grant reminds me of roger moore
0: and that's what flattered roger moore so oh much. my god yeah that must have been yeah north by north you know i've hated every movie that was made before i was born i just think we just you know i wish i was born in the 80s so i could have seen like back to the future and everything as a kid you know but um north by northwest is the one that is just one of the greatest movies I'd ever... I couldn't believe that there were they'd made movies before I was born that were this good.
1: I know. You know? I know. Roger Roger then took me out to... We went to lunch at Sardi's. And as we were...
0: <laughs> I don't know why it's funny. But it's like... It's, I know you had an article once. You're like, um, I was having dinner with Robert De Niro. Yes, I'm name dropping. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> but I mean, that's a lot... Le- but what's, what's better in your lifetime? You could say, I was having lunch with Roger Moore at Sardi's. That's true. I, I would... That would be my. I don't know what I would do after that in my life. Well, lifetime. I know I know a lot of people just because I've covered. So I know, things. but go so on. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt.
1: You. In, on my radio show, whenever I say, you know, well, I was having dinner with my friend Clive Davis last night, and Len has the sound effect and it goes name dropper. <laughs> <It's like, laughs> Why? Who cares, yeah, right? They right. love people. Love it. Of course, it's exciting, and it's not like it wasn't real. No, no, no. So, uh, you know, Roger and I are leaving the restaurant, and these middle aged women are sitting at the bar, and one of them goes, "He's still so handsome." Oh, I and can't. he goes. Hear. Thank you, lady. Oh, he's I can't believe you were friendly with then him. Then we go out into the sidewalk and this homeless man comes up to him with a greasy raincoat and plastic bags and it goes up and he goes Dun da, dun 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 dun, <laughs> dun 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 and Roger goes, I recognize the tune.
0: <laughs> Isn't he cool? <laughs> Did, I don't know like if that. you were the one that wrote it or maybe it was a different article we was talking about the little boy on the plane and he told them, um, you know, he's like, "You're." He goes, "Yes, don't tell Blofeld or something like that." Like, well, of course, he wasn't even in an episode with Blofeld, but it's <laughs> right, like he, he wasn't. No, he so, was. Oh, he w- oh uh, for, for your eyes only. He picks him up them up. Okay, it that's right. Oh, oh, you, right.
1: you oh, want, want oh, to get down. He let's him in the Mr. chimney. Mr. Bond, or I'll buy you a delicatessen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you want to get off? Boom.
0: That was but, a strange opening. Very weird because it opens at his <laughs> wife's grave, which they never. was so Weird. Yeah. Well,
1: that's from Honor Majesty's secret. Right. Right. She's killed, but it has no. If you hadn't, seen the, to the rest you, of the plot, no yeah. idea what's going on. But the great opening there is when he flies a helicopter through the building.
0: Oh yeah, and that's then right. Comes out. Right. The, uh, and LeBron, he's carrying the wheelchair at the end yeah, with a yeah. spike of the yeah. thing. Yeah.
1: The, the other great Roger Moore line. He's. Uh, I, I once asked him. We were talking about acting. He's, yeah,
0: he like, had almost as many good lines in real life as he I, did absolutely. in the movies. Yeah. It's, "Well, you know, I have. I have three
1: styles of acting, Michael.
0: Right eyebrow up. Left eyebrow up." both.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, what an awesome dude. I can't believe you were friends. That's so cool. I mean, he must have just... Um, so. It makes me so happy that he's a nice guy. Again, the exact opposite of Sean Connery, who we hear horrible stories about, or, or Daniel Craig, who I'm sure is nice, but he's so Brody. angry that he can't, yeah. that he's that he's playing James Bond. He's like, know, I'm never doing it again. I know, $40 Roger million. Roger was though. like the, the great respect he had for the character even Absolutely. if it wasn't what everybody wanted a James Bond when <laughs> But we you, grew up. It was exactly what you wanted. It was exactly because James you Bond. couldn't
1: take it seriously anymore. I mean, here's a spy. Whatever bar he goes in the world, they know what he drinks. Yeah, great. Right. Wow, right. <laughs> you're a real yeah. good and he spy. He seemed to completely get it. He did, and he knew at that point. The other thing he that's once, so rare. I know. I, it was um, uh, Barbara Broccoli, Cubby Broccoli's daughter, who's now the producer of the franchise. She told me Roger worked so well because it, when he became James Bond, the Cold War tensions were lessening. So, we really didn't think the world would be blown up. You know, always the plots are they're going to blow up the world because, you know, you had the Cuban missile crisis where the world could have blown up. Right. That stuff was really over with now. So, that fear wasn't there. So, you could, in order to keep the franchise going, you had to lighten it in tone and add some more humor to it.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: And, uh, and Roger was perfect for that humor. You know, Connery was funny and had some good lines in the old ones. Oh, yeah. I he still love them. But I mean. he had a, a lethal, killer quality to him which i think is best shown in that great scene in dr dr no No, where he's you've already had your six six, and he just pops the guy like that you know no it's
0: very important for the character for the whole franchise
1: but that's why roger was concerned about kicking that car down in for your eyes only because he created a bond that really didn't show that
0: ruthless i also know he was very upset and i agree because i remember watching i'm like what the hell in a view to a kill where Chris Walken, they kill all those people, you know, in that um, mining facility oh, yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he was thought, like, I really thought. don't like that. And I was like, I don't like that either. Like, I mean, that's too much. Yeah, he thought that was too much.
1: Walken, they're shooting and he's yeah. laughing and all that. Yeah, he didn't like that. But he did. Chris Walken told me the story. I was hanging out with
0: Chris. And <laughs> yeah, you're the coolest guy I've ever met. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I said, well, so what was, uh, what was your experience working with, uh, with Roger Moore? And he said, well, we were doing that scene on the Golden Gate Bridge. But I'm hanging on, and you know, Roger's like, I'm about to fall, and all that. And they weren't actually on the bridge, believe it or not, it was in a studio. What? <laughs> yeah,
0: <no. laughs> but when you said it, I'm like, wait a minute, they, are you had me for a second.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and you know, they were, but he's hanging down like this.
0: Still looks pretty good.
1: Yeah, and, and, the, and Chris Walken's hanging off like this, and they cut. And Roger looks down and says, planning
0: on doing anything else with your career? <laughs> Is that, I mean, is it possible because at the end, when Christopher Walken falls, he's laughing? Yeah. I don't suppose it's from that line that he, like they, they just kept the laughing. in. Looked like he looked at him and said, planning on doing something else in your career? <laughs> that I once asked Roger. I said, you yeah, know, I have
1: to tell you, I, I noticed in A View to a Kill, not as fine as Dower, but there's no. some charming things in it. I said, you know, I noticed in the early movies, whenever you were in the bedroom scene, you always had the, the covers around your waist and you could see your chest. And I said, I noticed in A View to a Kill uh, in the bedroom scenes, you have the covers around your neck. (laughs) They said, well, you know danger of uh, flu at my age
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's brilliant
1: <laughs> he had a like a just a snappy one-liner wow. for
0: everything and isn't that funny that you know he made these great movies in moon Ring and then four years only people didn't like as much i still oh, I like, like it. it
1: i think it's great it's i like favorite. it it's my favorite bomb movie oh it is
0: yeah mine it, is it, it, spy it, love me always but um
1: yeah that's a good one but, but, but then
0: but then he made that <laughs> octopussy whenever he said and it was fantastic i think it's great yeah, it's, it's really good uh, yeah. i mean and, you know the clown suit's a little uh yeah, it's, but, but yet, and it still also works. I don't know for me. I but mean, it I is love, weird, but
1: uh, well, it has he my, takes
0: off that nose. Will you tell him who I am? Like, it's just that, like the nose is the only no, no, reason. But they, it, it
1: does, to my mind, it has my favorite scene between Bond and a villain when he's playing backgammon
0: oh. against Kamal Khan. When he's just staring at him and he says, well, uh, oh, what do you know? <laughs> well, no, he Double sixes. <laughs> 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 he, he sees the trick, right? Yeah. And the
1: major is playing and losing again. And uh, uh, Louis Jourdan, another actor oh. who I got to meet too, loved Louis Jourdan. I like Fabulous.
0: Octopussy? <laughs> uh, perhaps you would let me do it. <laughs> Oct- Octopussy. But he's, he's
1: Octopussy. He said, Why don't we make it interesting, Mr. Ma- uh, Major? A double. I can't, not with your luck. And Roger goes, I would have taken that bet." <laughs> yeah. Then why don't you take the Major's place? He sits down and says, the stakes are 8,000 rupees. Do you have cash? And he takes out the Fabergé egg the Fabergé and says, egg. will this do? Yeah. <laughs> Puts it down and then he says, you need a great deal of luck, Mr. Bond. Oh, luck. Then I shall use your, I shall use player's privilege. Players' and privilege. Use your lucky dice. <laughs> Double sixes. Fancy. He's b- just staring right at him. <laughs> and then he says, and then Kamal Khans up writing the check out. And he says, uh, I prefer cash. And Kamal Khan says, get it cash for it. And then he leans over and he says, spend the money quickly, Mr. Bond. I intend to, Kamal Khan. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And then the great racist moment of all time when he's leaving the club and they give him the rupees and his two Indian helpers come. Yeah. And he gives them. What's well, that tennis rupees. pro guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his other guy. And he gives it. He says, that ought to keep you in curry for a while. Oh, that's right. <laughs>
0: That's <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that <laughs> I'm saying, like, what the hell? <laughs> hilarious, absolutely hilarious. But those movies are so much fun. I, and again, I'm so happy that you like James Bond as much as I do, and especially the Roger Moore stuff too. Yeah, I. It, what's the one I, I keep playing all the time? Um, it's from For Your Eyes Only with the Contessa. Um,
1: oh, the Contessa Lies, Oh, Oh, uh, Lee von something.
0: Yeah, and um, oh he, my he says um, an accent. unlucky. There's no for an unlucky shoe. What is the the line is? Oh yeah, I've um, been I was saying it for like a, about a, a month or two. Like.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Bunky is the guy's name was playing there. Right, Something she's about, a mad at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know who her boyfriend was at the time, and he happened to be on the set
0: no. when she was there. Her boyfriend was one Piers Brosnan. Shut uh, shut up. Yeah.
1: She was dating a young Pierce Isn't that Bronson.
0: interesting because remember they wanted Roger Moore first before Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they right. got who they wanted. And then they wanted Pierce Bronson before Timothy Dalton, but he was right. in the contract to Remington Steel. That's right. And then they seem to get everybody they want eventually. Yeah. The Daltons, the two Dalton ones aren't bad, I love, by the way. I love but the they, second Dalton one's fantastic.
1: Yeah. License to kill. License to kill. Very good.
0: First one's just a walkthrough, you know, whatever, but that second one, but, um, I didn't really like the Pierce Bronson ones that much. And I, no, like, that's and I, I like him.
1: Yeah. But that's when I stopped watching it because yeah, I, I think a lot
0: of people did. If
1: it's possible to be a lightweight Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan was a lightweight yeah. Roger Moore.
0: And you know what's weird is that fourth one, Die Another Day. If you've seen the opening, yeah, what potential? Yeah. It had yeah. Daniel Craig potential because yeah. he's being tortured. Right. And then as soon as that montage is over, it goes into the crap again.
1: Well, you lost. You and lost it was me, right there. You lost me with the invisible car. Well,
0: that, that was that same. That's a gadget. You know. That's just so. That's important. why it's amazing that Daniel Craig was able to come mm-hmm. back and again, like you were saying, not blowing up the world. It was over just a hundred million dollars, right? And just a hundred million dollars. You know, like and that. And then when you can make a movie with a poker game that lasts a half hour, that's interesting. Every time I watch it, yeah, you win the prize.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Chemin de fer. They
0: used yeah. to play that other great scene. In- also, did you know, my friend told me uh, in the poker game, the woman, the Chin- the Asian woman in yeah. the poker game yeah, yeah. is, I believe, the one from You Only Live Twice. Because um why do Chinese girls taste different? You think me better? Huh? That's her. <laughs> that's her. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. You think me better? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, that's the one where, uh, where Sean Connery goes yellow face.
0: Oh yeah, right. I know. I mean, oh my god, right. You can't I wonder if I sometimes I go like oh I hope they don't mind airing this, you know. I don't please don't stop or edit or take it away. I know. I know you must become a Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I don't know why. And he was a Japanese for like a second. And it I didn't help. It doesn't make at any all. sense Yeah. <laughs> But it has a great set, though, in the volcano. Oh, my God. That set is so funny. You was just about to mention it. And that scene where they're running with the girls in the bikini, you know, a really pretty Japanese girl. And that, that's like such a famous movie shot oh, yeah. where they're running towards the camera. Yeah. You know, Plus, I've seen all the makings of and how that guy made that. Was it Ken Adams or something? Ken it's a classic oh Ken. Oh, my gosh. Fascinating behind-the-scenes stuff.
1: Louis, uh, I had a friend who, she lives in Beverly Hills, and she was, was very close to Louis Jardin and his wife, Keek. So I said, you know, I really, I really like Louis Jourdan because I love Gigi the movie. Yeah, I loved him in Bond, and he is in one of the my all time favorite Colombo episodes. Oh, is that right? <laughs> oh, it's, it's called Murder Under Glass, and he plays a restaurant critic who's extorting restaurant owners. They have to pay him off, and he'll give them good reviews in his powerful column. And one of them decides he's not, gonna, he's done with it. He's going to expose him. So Louis Jourdan kills him, and he kills him in this incredibly clever way. That only Columbo can unravel. Right. And what he
0: does is. <clears throat> like Jack Cassidy used to do. Oh, Columbo. I love Jack
1: Cassidy. As the magician. You ever <laughs> yeah, see that? Right. yeah, of oh, course. It's
0: great. He's talking to the tape recorder and everything. He's got it all planned oh, out. Yeah, yeah.
1: And he, oh, yeah. And then his great line at the end, uh,
0: um, he says, and I thought I'd committed the perfect murder. Yeah. And Columbo
1: said, the perfect murder. Oh, No. That's just an emotion. <laughs> and then they play the Henry Mancini theme from Charade. Da, 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 dee, Is that one? Da, da. Is that
0: directed by Spielberg, that one?
1: No, Spielberg directed the very first uh, pilot episode oh. of Columbo. He directed Murder by the Book okay. with Jack Cassidy. Oh, it was. Okay, a different Miller. Jack Cassidy. One. Right. Okay, I and knew that, Jack Cassidy and Martin Milner in that one, they play uh, a mystery writing team. Now, why mystery writing team? Because the creators of Columbo... Uh, Richard Levinson and William Link, they were a mystery writing team. Oh. So this is an autobiographical one. And the key to understanding that the, Columbo figures this one out because it turns out that Jack Cassidy's not really a writer. It's Martin Milner who's the writer. Jack Cassidy does the kind of PR. right? But both their names are in the books. Oh, that's and Martin Milner's decided to go off on his own. And Jack Cassidy knows his career's over because he's not a writer. So he kills him for the insurance money. That's the motive for the murder, right. and when Peter Falk figures out that Jack Cassidy really isn't a writer, then he thinks that's the motive. That's why yes. he did it, and that's how he gets him.
0: I remember watching that as a kid. <clears throat> I loved it. that particular episode, and there was a shot in it, I think, on a boat. Yeah, and I yeah. remember saying, "Boy, that's that's an interesting shot for a television show." I remember thinking this as a kid. Yeah. Later, I saw it later. You know, yeah. when, not when it first aired. Yeah. And then when I saw the credits and it said directed by Steven, Steven Spielberg, I'm like. Well, now this all makes sense. Well. Because it was a very interesting shot for a television show. So
1: this food critic one, Murder Under
0: Under Glass with Louis Jourdan. And what he
1: does is such a good episode. Really one of my favorites. It's so elegant. And and Louis Jourdan is most elegant. And he goes to have a meal with this restaurant guy who's going to expose him. And then they have a kind of a fight, and Louis Jordan says, Pity, pity, and he leaves the restaurant. And then the guy goes down to his wine cellar. He selects, or his assistant goes down, the waiter, just selects a bottle, a random bottle of wine out of the wine cellar. The guy opens the wine, drinks it, drops dead. The wine's poisoned. Now how, from a random, a bottle randomly selected, does it get poisoned? When Louis Jordan has left the building, how does he do it? Colombo figures out, of course. The poison is not on the wine. The poison was in the corkscrew. Oh, wow. So he (laughs) poisons his own bottle of wine when he opens it. Oh, that's awesome. So Colombo figures this out, and the last scene is so good. It's Columbo wants to make a meal with Louis Louis Mm. Jordan. And he's making veal scallopini. (laughs) Colombo's got his chef's hat on. (laughs) It's great. And Louis Jordan arrives. Says, I'm you late. know that
0: was in the opening uh, ads for the this week on Columbus. He's exactly. got the chef hats
1: on. I'm like, oh, i got to see that one. And Louis Jordan comes. You know, and he says, I'm late. I'm sorry, Lieutenant. And and Louis Jordan looks down. And, mm, butter? Salt? Veal? Could this be a scallop de veau with a little pepper? <laughs> and Columbus says, yes, but I use white pepper. I find white pepper looks better on veal than black pepper. And then Louis Jardin's making the dressing. And Colombo begins to explain how Louis Jardin got the poison of the wine through the bottle. The bottle opener, the corkscrew. <clears throat> and um, Louis Jardin knows that Colombo knows he's figured it out. So Louis Jardin has brought another one of those poisoned corkscrews with mm-hmm. him. So Colombo opens the wine with corkscrew, and they sit down. They pours out the wine. And uh there was a wine poured out and comes out, sits down. And Clum goes, cheers. And he drinks the wine. And Louis Jordan goes, A very interesting theory, but there remains a matter of proof. And Clum says, oh, I can't prove any of this. And Louis Jordan sits back smugly. He lifts his wine glass. And Clum says, ah, I wouldn't defy were you, sir. You switched the corkscrews. But I switched the glasses. That's the poison glass. And he takes it from Louis Jourdan, brings it to his eyes, says, that's what the boys down at the lab call evidence. Uh. <laughs> and, and, that's so classy. And, oh, it's, and then Louis Jourdan says, he's like just now pissed off. And he says, "Calambo, You know, you know, <laughs> you know, Lieutenant, I respect you, but I really don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter walks up. You know, I feel the same way about you. Oh, I respect your talent. But I don't like anything else about
0: you. Well, that's so great. And then he
1: goes... Hi. And then Cloma's like, Louis Gerardo eats his... Well? Louis Gerardo eats a scallopini. <laughs> Lieutenant, I wish you had been a chef. Aww. And he goes, I understand. So cut. Now, who's the director of that episode? Oh, I will give you a hint. He directed something, a movie, that became very famous... That has a lot to do with gourmet cooking and food and wine. And it's a thriller.
0: Damn it. It's not the guy from Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. No. Uh, (laughs) It's a very
1: famous performance by an English actor who won the Oscar.
0: But the director directed this other... You would know the director,
1: but I'm trying to... Help you guess the movie. This is like, uh, what's my line? Or what's my movie? And would it, is it in the seventies? Yes, you can. Yes, you, can a, you can ask her. Yes, or I'll g- only give you yes or no answer.
0: Is it the seventies? No. The eighties? No. Nineties? Yes. It's a cooking movie, like a, a
1: cooking's involved. Let's say our main character has fine taste in wine and food. Certain it's kinds. Not of food the food. Uh, no, that can't be right. I don't know. <clears throat> You're not that good. Keep I, I, a famous actor, played and won the Oscar. Jonathan Demme, exactly. Oh my Silence God! Of the okay, <laughs> Jonathan <laughs> it took Demme took a while di- to get there. Jonathan Demme directed that Louis. Gerard wow! How do you like? What is that food.
0: fascinating? That they had all these famous, unbelievable Oscar-winning directors on *Colombo*, who were
1: just starting out. Yeah, who were just starting out.
0: I guess that's why the show was so successful. You have a really good actor in Peter Falk, yep. really interesting guy. Well, the show- you have these unbelievable Actors. villains. Or Dick Van Dyke was in it and stuff like Donald that. Donald Pleasance. Right, right. And then
1: uh, uh, Ruth Gordon played the mystery writer. Oh. She I locks think- her nephew in the safe. I
0: used to do an imitation of her back in the 90s. It was like,
1: ah, you gotta
0: learn to live a little. Relax. And I- can't, obviously, that's why you never heard of me before. Still doing the invitation. People are like, I don't know what's going on here. I know no, You can't it. get away with a Ruth
1: Gordon and nobody knows. <laughs> no. But the reason Columbo worked was – and I know um, Bill Link. He's still alive, Levinson and Link. And um, Bill said, you know, the, the two things that we used that made it was Columbo, the detective, was stolen from um, Crime and Punishment. Okay. Because if you know the setup of Crime and Punishment – You know the guy kills his landlady. You see the murder in the beginning. And it's interesting to watch the detective. The mystery is how is the detective going to catch him? So they stole that from Dostoevsky. The other thing that made it work was it's the contrast between working-class Columbo and the super-rich, super-elegant, sophisticated, sophisticated but slimy. That's what always worked. And that's why in every Columbo episode there's a moment – where Peter Falk drives up to the murderer's Beverly Hills mansion, right in his
0: shabby. I little I never car. thought about that. Of and course, and then there's
1: always then there are these key moments in Columbo's. I know this because Bill told me. The Columbo first meets the murderer, right, and the murderer sizes up Columbo and thinks, first of all, I've committed the perfect crime. It's
0: almost like James Bond. Right. They always meet the villain right at the beginning.
1: Right. But in this case, you know, the murderer says, "Okay, I've committed the perfect crime, and you've seen me commit the perfect crime." Now this schlubby detective who looks like he just got out of bed, right. who you know, has to take all these notes a million times and is asking these weird questions. No, Matt. I mean, I got this thing figured out. Then there comes the moment where Columbo realizes this is my guy, right? And there's always the one telltale clue that he's picked up. Right. You're not quite sure because it doesn't reveal that at the end. Then there comes the moment, and these are always the best moments in Columbo. And then it's never written explicitly. It's just in the acting and in um, elliptical language where Columbo basically says, I know you did it. And the murderer then realizes Columbo knows I did it. Right. But the murderer says, I know you know I did it. But now prove it. <laughs> and then you get the Mon, where he proves it. And the classic example of that is now you see him, now you don't. Jack Cassidy, the magician. So if you remember that episode – Jack Cassidy murders the club owner. Now, the club owner is in his office above the club writing the letter exposing Jack Cassidy as a Nazi war criminal. Oh,
0: right. That's right. I forgot about that aspect. But
1: his door is locked. Now, a locked door is nothing for a magician because he picks the lock. So he gets in and shoots him. Now, Columbo, looking around... Sees the lock, and he can tell it's been picked. And it was during his act, He right? was during his act. Yeah, yeah, he was, right, he right. was in the water tank. <laughs> yeah, He's allegedly underwater. Right. <laughs> but Columbo sees the lock has been picked. Well, who could pick a lock in the building but a magician? But now Columbo's got to figure out, the guy was on stage, how do I prove it, right? Right. There's this great moment where Columbo goes to see the magician's act. And uh, Jack Cassidy is the great Santini, his name is. And the great Santini's doing this stuff. And he finishes an act and Columbo stands up and he says, um, oh, he says, could I have a volunteer? Oh, me and I, So he goes up and Columbo and he does all the stuff. He t- pulls cards out of now. Columbo's coat and this, that. Boy, thing.
0: that's terrific. He's totally into it, right?
1: Around for the uh, lieutenant, please. And then Columbo says, Well, I have a trick I'd like to ask you. Now, and, and you know, the great Santini's performance. before he's got to say yes, of course. So Columbo says, you know, we got these handcuffs down at the station. The boys, they say, Nobody can get out of these handcuffs. Do you think you could get out of these handcuffs? (laughs) Of course. So he puts the handcuffs on, and Jack Cassidy is just the most slimy elegance. He was (laughs) slimy elegance personified. Cassidy's got the handcuffs on. And and he says, may I ask the good lieutenant to tell the audience that uh, we have never tried this before? Oh, I can vouch for that. I can vouch for that. Santini, drum roll, please. And then Santini looks at Columbo, and Columbo's looking at him, you know, smiling. (laughs) And then he goes down under his cap Your handcuffs, Lieutenant. And he hands them to Columbo and Columbo looks at him and says, I knew you could do it and gives him this wink. <laughs> and it's like Boom. That's he. now he knows he's got an adversary that he underestimates. Isn't that amazing? But that is that I mean that is you know, when I talk to young writers or actors, I say, watch Columbo. You will learn about writing and you will learn about acting. Yeah. Because you are watching A list actors who didn't do TV back in those days. But Columbo was so popular around the world and so sophisticated that you could get Donald Pleasence and Ruth Gordon and Nicole Williamson.
0: Yeah. And it was weird too because it was like, you know, it was part of that, the, you know, mystery movie. So they, it only came out once a month or so. And, um, but that was the one that lasted. Out of all of them because it was so, Macmillan, I mean, because Peter Falk was also yeah, yeah. just beloved, right, where you had Rock Hudson.
1: McMillan and Wife is pretty good. Yeah. Not as cleverly written. Well, as well that's Columbia the other was.
0: thing. Those were just the basic, but the, yeah. right, this one, I mean, just, yeah, with all these directors that went on to do such well, great just, stuff. Was, I wonder was, just, like, who was producing that show that found all this stuff? You have to praise them, too, I guess. Well,
1: uh, it was a guy by the name of Peter S. Fisher who would go on to create Murder, she Wrote.
0: Oh, that makes sense. And This yeah, guy's just good at he having was, shows that, at that last. Show.
1: And, you know, everybody wanted to work with Peter Falk, who was the highest paid actor at the time. He was paid $500,000 an episode, which was a ton Really?
0: Yeah. That's, unbelie- that's unbelievable.
1: Now, I went over to visit Peter Falk in Beverly Hills when I was there. You did? I did, yeah. Because my friend lives around the corner. Uh, she's on Canon, and Peter was on Roxbury. <laughs> oh, I thought you were on the Canon oh, TV Cannon, show. Okay, <laughs> right, right, right. So I said, I said to my friend, I said, yeah, you know, I know Peter Falk lives on Roxbury Drive. I said, I'd love to meet him. She says, oh, we've known Peter forever, so I'll call him. We called him up. See, Peter, I have a friend here. He's a big Colombo fan. Yeah, sure, come around. So I went around and had lunch with him. He's great. Oh my god! And then he said, "You want to see the coat?" <laughs> Shut <laughs> up! <laughs> yes. Oh my god! Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, oh my he god! Said, "Do you want to see the coat?" Said, "Yeah." And up in his closet, in uh, plastic wrap, was the, there were actually three three coats, but well, the was coat was his was Peter Fox's own ring. <laughs> oh, it was. He bought it in New York in the sixties. And he – they were trying to figure out something for him to wear on the – the very first Colombo was Prescription Murder, which was a made-for-TV movie in like 69, 68, with Gene Barry as the murderer. Very – have you ever seen it? No. Oh, it's great. Gene Barry plays a psychiatrist who murders his wife. Really, really good and, and very stylish, very stylish. And they were looking for like something for – and, and the, Peter Falk is just becoming Colombo. It's not quite, the performance is not quite right, right. there, but it's interesting to
0: see. Which is even more interesting. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it was really about Gene Barry. Gene Barry was the star because Peter
0: Falk was not known. So Peter Falk is the supporting character. Who he wasn't known then in '69. This is a... nah. so from Colombo. He got all the other movie things. I didn't know. I thought movies. it might have gone the other way. He had, done, way. I didn't he had know. done.
1: He did Broadway shows. He did movies. Yeah,
0: uh, before Colombo, but Colombo made him world famous. Right, and then he got the big movies of the '70s. You know, Murder by Death. Oh, okay. I didn't. I. I wasn't. I thought those might have come first. I didn't know.
1: No, the, the later Colombo, uh, because well, also, it was
0: very rare. For a TV star to get movies back then, I right. think that's why I. But he was, was such confused. a big
1: star that he was uh, he was in those some of the Neil Simon movies, Murder by Death. I think he's in. Yeah, he's in that one. Yeah, uh, but you know he had his great friendship with Jack uh, Cassavet uh, with uh, John Cassavetes, so he's in all those Cassavetes movies. Okay, uh, like you know, Opening Night. Peter was in all those movies because they were old old friends. In fact, John Cassavetes played brilliantly. Uh, a maestro based on Leonard Bernstein, who murders his mistress oh, in Etude other. in Black.
0: You Wait, how do you remember the titles of the the episodes? Because I've
1: seen them all. A oh my god, times.
0: that's like so funny.
1: I've seen them all a million times. I've studied yeah, them. But this all. is
0: again, this is why going back. This is why you're a good reporter. You remember stuff like that. You know, you remember the titles to the, which no one ever remembers. You know, the titles. That's like you. You know, you're. Yeah, no, I remember the lines. You have good them. memory and stuff. Well, clearly, if you go to see a play, you have to remember a whole. But I always wonder. Um, how somebody does remember, you know, you go, you got to go back and write it. Well, you take, you yeah,
1: know, you take little notes.
0: I know, but that's and the can, thing. I can, can, I can you take notes in the, I mean, yeah, you, you learn to write in the dark. Oh, you learn the And you to write learn to dark. write without
1: looking at what you're writing. So that's you're what I was going to say. And everybody, all the critics.
0: Isn't that annoying for people <laughs> who are sitting next to you?
1: <laughs> well, you do it discreetly. Yeah. But like Frank Rich, I noticed when he was a critic, I'd often sit near him and he never, his And eyes he was
0: the legendary New York, New York Times, Times critic that could close a play. Right.
1: But, he always wrote. He had a little notepad. Uh, that's on his, no uh,
0: offense to you. I'm right, sorry. I didn't mean. Incredible. But that, that was in the day when yeah, a yeah. bad review would close a play. Yeah, yeah
1: absolutely. Uh, but you know, Frank would sit there and he had a little, little notepad on his knee, and he would never not look at the stage. And he would just he would write with Wow. Down. He
0: had a who was the guy that you had in your book that married that girl that and uh, they w- were working together. Um, was it Clive Davis? Cl- uh, married? Their- what, was, yeah, they they were dating and they would go to a show together. And he was a critic for one of the magazines or things. And, and then he bought this assistant, but it turned out they were dating and they were talking during the show. Oh, yeah. And um, they gave it a bad review and everybody was pissed.
1: Oh, that was Frank Rich. Oh, it was Frank Rich. Yeah, okay. That was, that's what that I thought. was Trevor. It was chess. Oh, it Trevor, was? oh, Trevor Nunn saw Frank Rich with his date and saw them snickering and laughing from the back. And but knew. that
0: girl also worked for the paper they didn't know they were dating.
1: No, no, that, that's a different person. But the person oh. you're thinking of is Alex Witchell. Alex Witchell dated Frank Rich. That's
0: right, that's right. And that's who I'm thinking. It was
1: about. David Merrick who discovered that. That's right. And David Merrick took out the heart shaped ad that he got in right, the New York right. Times. Fascinating. After after Frank panned his musical um very good Eddie. Or, no, uh, what was it?
0: Whatever it was, it didn't work because yeah. it, the musical closed anyway, right? I mean, yeah, was,
1: well, Frank Panda, then Alex Witchell, who was then dating Frank, but nobody knew it. Right, nobody knew. She then zinged the thing in her column and said, it was terrible. Yeah, they were
0: one. a good one-two punch. Yeah, exactly. But
1: David Merrick knew they were dating, so he took yeah. out this heart-shaped ad. David and, Merrick, the producer of 42nd Street. Yeah. And, and he produced right. this play. I forget what it was. It was some, some old... I can't remember what it was now, what the play was, but it was it was an old, it was a chestnut. Brought it in from Goodspeed. And uh, so he t- takes this ad out in the New York Times and it says, heart-shaped ad, and it's got a terrible quote from Frank about his show and a terrible quote from Alex within the heart. <clears throat> and it says, to Frank and Alex, then they are bad quotes in the heart. And then he writes, at last people are holding hands in the theater.
0: Yeah, yeah? that's right, that's right.
1: All my love, David.
0: That was amazing. Now,
1: how does the ad get in the New York Times? Because, of course, you know, the Times is not going to run that ad, right? Yeah. It's attacking their writers. This is in
0: your book. I can't yeah, remember the, the answer.
1: So Merrick scribbles this ad out. And my friend John Wilner was his ad guy. And John Wilner says, I know how to get that ad in the paper. Get it in the Monday paper. Because on Friday, all the editors leave early. And the only guys there are the printers and their union guys. And they don't read anything. So he comes in at the last minute for the deadline for Monday's paper on Monday's culture section. All the editors are gone. Goes, sorry, ad's late. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can you get it in? And these guys are like, yeah, sure. You know, boom. In the first edition. Frank Rich picks up the first edition on Monday night at 945 because the paper's come out at 945. Yeah. First edition. Opens to the culture pages, sees this ad, goes ballistic, calls screaming and yelling. And it is gone for the second edition of the newspaper. Oh, really? He oh, got yeah. it out. Wow. Oh, it out. because it's his paper, it's right? His paper, right. of course. Right. And it was right. making fun of him. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's awesome. Gone for the second. Wow, edition that's so. Wow, bad I mean, power. that was David Merrick
1: at his best. There's
0: two guys who are very powerful. And, and
1: yeah, that's right. And I mean, Merrick had nothing to lose.
0: Do you know? Anymore. Do you remember the show Carrie? Did you ever see that? I never saw it. But oh, I, yeah. oh no, yeah. I think he had that closed after opening because I saw it. I was there, the like, the second night. It closed, it, like, the was third it really,
1: night. I mean, Betty Buckley tells me legendary tales. It, was it really that bad? No. We it, thought it was good. It, it, has was a, it, it actually has a good,
0: it has some good music in yeah, it. Yeah, it was funny. I saw it also at a production downtown as yeah, they saw did it. A, and, um, There's
1: a pretty song that Betty sang called When There's No One.
0: Yeah. I don't when when remember. When There's
1: No One.
0: I mean, it's like the. I met crazy the girl part. that played Carrie, the later version. We did a show. You know, actually, Sarah Silverman, you know, who's my friend now yeah. name dropping. Um, has a show coming out called The Bedwetter. Oh. Um, a play? It's going or? to the Atlantic Theater Musical oh. based on her book. Uh-huh. But it, it, she's not in it. Um, it's a nine-year-old girl. So it's supposed to be her. Right, right. And it's good. It's, uh, the music is by the great Adam Schlesinger oh, from yeah. Fountains of Wayne. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he's also doing he a version else. of The Nanny. Yeah. No, I I so. So. That's new. Right, right. Um, but I've heard mm-hmm. the music and it's, it's excellent. Hmm. And uh, I was in a reading with the girl who played Carrie... And did you ever see the play Significant Other? Yes, a, I think I did. Who? Oh, it was um, because oh, he he's doing the book for it too with uh, Sarah. I can't remember his name. Oh, I don't know. It was I loved it? I just yeah, it was just one of those plays that closed because it wasn't a musical. It had no names in it, right? And it was so good, uh, but people just don't care when it's not a musical, you know? And there's no names in it, and they it was at a really that great theater, not the Schubert one, the one. Right across from Schubert Alley, like right across from the Marriott, the the really nice theater that Amy Schumer was in,
1: oh yeah, the Steve uh, Martin play yeah uh, the, the booth is that in
0: fact, or I think that's why they had to leave right for that play right. uh, for that play to come in yeah
1: was that the booth, or uh...
0: I can't remember the names of the theaters, but yeah, it was really uh really great, but do you do i mean um have you do you feel you've closed a show from one of your reviews?
1: No, I never closed a show, but what I could do. It's—I write more of a column. It's an opinion column, but it's—you know—was it always full of backstage gossip and stuff. What I could do back in the day, when this was my full-time job, um, I could brand a show very early on. I could basically say this show's a flop, and it's got a lot of trouble. Here's all the backstage problems, and I did that early on, even before it opened. So I could kind of. Plant in the minds.
0: I mean, the that critics. is how you make a name for yourself. Absolutely. Unfortunately, yeah. But is it exciting when you make a good review and you see your yeah. name like uh, yeah. on the? Well, the other you thing is, sometimes know, I,
1: could, I would often often be the first person to say something's great. I mean, I was, sure, right, of course. I was the first New York writer to see The Lion King out of town when no one had any expectations for The Lion King because it was Disney and they did Beauty and the Beast and everyone hated that, right? Excuse me, and it was Julie Taymor who was a genius but weird. And you couldn't put the two together, so it looked like it could be a train wreck. And I went out of town to see it, expecting it to be a train wreck. And, you know, you say the first number in the circle of life, and, you know, my God, it's the most exciting thing I've ever seen in the live theater. Wow. I I was one of the first people ever to see the circle of life. Wow. And it was was just, you never, I I remember writing, it was at the Daily News then, I said, I, I just, I don't have the words to describe what I have seen. I don't have the language, the vocabulary. To describe what Julie Taymor has done, wow! Because I'd never seen those kind of you know. Now you can say, oh, they're Indonesian shadow puppets and Bali. I mean, what do we know from Bali and right. Indonesian puppetry? None of us knew any of that kind of stuff, you know. But Julie did, but
0: we didn't. Why has she done anything else? Like, I mean, so, I mean, I, know, well, I know the Spider-Man thing. I'm just like, you think it's just like a that was it, or
1: no? She's she's done very fine. Operas. I know
0: people like to they want to use her, not just well, because you, of that, because yeah. she's interesting. Yeah. But,
1: no, she's done great operas, you know. But she she works in the artsy world. Yeah, you know, uh, you know her um, uh, magic flute at uh, the uh, the Metropolitan Opera is beautiful. I mean, yeah, you go opera. Yeah, op- yeah, you I don't know. strike me as an opera. I now. go
0: to the ballet. I don't go to the. opera. I like the ballet. My mother like makes it. me go on Super Bowl Sunday every year, and I keep telling. I'm like, I can't go today. It's the one day I can't go. I'm never gonna get married if you keep taking me to the su- ballet on Super Bowl Sunday.
1: Ballet's great, though. I love the I love the Balanchine of the Robin stuff.
0: Well, yeah. Um, we did too. We once we saw. Did you see an American in Paris, the yeah. musical? I didn't care for it that much. Oh, I, I liked I it, and oh. um, so my mother and I went, and we uh, the guy who was in it, the lead guy, was in the ballet we had seen, right. Like a, uh, you know, a year before. Yeah, or something. yeah, yeah. I forgot. And yeah. We liked him, and
1: uh, I saw it in Paris actually.
0: You saw? I saw an it American in, uh, in Paris. I started in Paris. The P- Broadway play? Yeah. Started
1: in Paris. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And
0: you saw it there? I saw it
1: there, yeah.
0: Yeah. Was it with the same cast? Yeah. Same they brought cast. them over?
1: Yeah. They did a they did uh their their out of town tryout was in Paris.
0: I thought it was okay because I like you know, I mean I, I like to give things a chance. Um I don't want to hate everything, but I do. Like, Did you like Finding Neverland? Because I hated no, that. No. I hated it. My niece still gets mad at me. She's like, I thought it was good. I'm like, you don't know anything. Right. <laughs> this is a horrible play. Yeah, no, it was Horrible. It that good. makes me so happy. And it
1: was produced by Harvey Weinstein.
0: Oh, good. Then we sh- are supposed to hate it. Well, <laughs> good. I'll let her know that then, too. <laughs> but I uh, taped something yesterday. Do you remember the movie Author, Author? Yes. Yeah, yeah with Al Pacino. Yeah, with Al Pacino. Yeah, yeah. It
1: was written by... Uh, er...
0: Israel Horowitz. Israel Horowitz, yeah.
1: It's, uh, there's a scene set in Joe Allen's. The actual restaurant, Joe Allen.
0: Y- yeah. Wait, which scene? I usually know the movie because I know there's one at the Plaza. I know there's one there's at a, a c- Chinese restaurant. And, I then, of course, there at authorities at one point. But there's they're Joe Allen's at one point. And, which is why I uh, taped this one because this is the way it used to be when you did a show and you would wait. I, I don't know if you remember this scene where they um, just get the, get the reviews. I taped it off the TV. Klein was enthralled. Goddamn Klein was goddamn enthralled. Well, they thought it was Stuart Klein? Stewart Klein. Yeah, right. Stuart Klein is on TV. Anyway, <laughs> 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 Ivan, we got Klein enthralled. And right where you're the boat, they have
1: a sailing
0: class. <laughs> Klein was enthralled. Klein was enthralled. Klein was enthralled. He loved it. That means we got a clean sweep of the TV. I know we got a rave in the news the post hated it but if we get the new york (laughs) times we're in
2: if we don't get the times we don't
0: run let me tell you something sweetheart in this town if you don't get a rave review from the new york times you close period i don't care if klein was enthralled and raptured and reached orgasm without the new york times we're dead how bad could the times be they heard the audience screaming yelling author author can be a disaster. Opening night of Mackerel Skies, the audience yelled, "Author, author!" What's Mackerel Skies? Exactly. I mean, that's everybody's obvious right. Exactly. That's, I mean, I must use that all the time. Of course, no one knows what it's from. You know, the opening night of Mackerel Skies, the audience yelled. People are like, "What are you exactly. talking about?"
1: <laughs> no, those were those were the days. I mean, those I tried, were the days. I tried to evoke those days in my book, Razzle Dazzle,
0: and I think. Yes, you did. And I, that's why it was so interesting, yeah, too, and, I, you know, waiting for the reviews to come out in the paper.
1: I know, in the paper, yeah. I, I mean,
0: ha- you're not, this is modern with the TV. I know, I know, I know.
1: But I have a really good scene of when Michael Bennett is waiting for the reviews for Dreamgirls. And his relationship is a little strained with uh, Bernie Jacobs, who was running the Schubert's then, who produced Dreamgirls. But they had a very intense father and son relationship. And um, they get a rave review from Frank Rich, one of Frank Rich's best-written reviews. You know, when theater history is being made, you can feel it. That's what he begins with. And he then goes on to describe Jennifer Holiday singing, and I'm telling you, I'm not going. Which you also
0: said wasn't even going to be in the play.
1: It was written at the last minute. Yeah.
0: It was written in like 20 minutes at the rehearsal studio. And again, like you said, with uh, Miss Hannigan... They demanded she come. Was it Mike Nichols again? He yeah, said you uh, got to uh, bring her back. And they, I don't know who it was, but it, they, they got to bring her back. You
1: got to bring the fat girl back. <laughs> you got to bring, bring the fat,
0: fat girl, girl back. Fat girl back, yeah. yeah.
1: They said, you know, because the second act just had a hole in it, and right? It was one of Michael's friends who said he said, you know, the audience wants to see the fat girl. Again. <laughs> yeah. You got to bring her back. Yeah, got to bring her back. So, anyway, and you know, Bennett is high on drugs and probably drunk and all this. Yeah. And Bernie, he calls Bernie in the morning. And he's very worried about Dream Girls because he'd had a flop with, um, the, the, with Ballroom. Right. Which was after right after Chorus Line. And that was a flop. So he was, am I going to be a one-hit wonder kind of guy? And uh, he says to Bernie Jacobs, he says, you know, do we, do we have a hit? Do we have a hit? And Bernie says, Michael, we have Frank Rich. He says, we have Frank. We have a hit. And Michael said, I need to know, do we have a hit? And he says, Michael, we have a very big hit. And then Bennett says, good, I'm glad. And then hangs up. Yeah. How about that? Yeah.
0: And it was all Frank Rich. I mean, yeah, yeah in the New York Times, that was, uh, that was the thing. Is he, well, still- was- is he he died, right? Who? Frank Rich? No. Are we still alive? Frank
1: Rich is the executive uh, producer of Veep. He is? And Succession.
0: Well, that seems like a conflict of interest somehow. He's not a critic know, oh, anymore. Right, right. He's not a critic anymore. But I, yeah, he
1: left a long time ago. Yeah. His last review for The Times was the was Perestroika, the second part of Angels in America. Oh, that's early
0: on in the 90s. Yeah, he left. Oh, I didn't know he was he gone left. that long. No, he, <laughs> <laughs> Where have you been? I don't know. Oh, I don't in the know. In a basement at some comedy club. Perestroika. Was, that, was the guy who just died who was... Who, Ron Ron Liebman, Liebman. played he, Roy Cohen. Right, he was, and he just died. Right? He, he was the original yeah. Roy Cohen. Yeah, yeah. I, I was very upset. I never got to see that on Broadway. I saw the HBO with Mike Nichols. Overrated. Oh, really? Yeah, I because I like the movie a lot. I the thought, HBO. I one.
1: saw the original production. I thought Millennium Approaches was good. Perestroika is not good at all. Perestroika was very pretentious. Oh, you know, you had like the Mormon on an iceberg in Antarctica reciting poetry, and it wasn't good. Millennium approaches the political stuff could be because I'm a Republican and, you know, Reagan was such an easy target back in those days. It seemed a little obvious to me. But the power of the play for me was in its domestic drama between, um, I can't remember the characters' names now. I can't remember the names. But either. the two, the two gay guys who are living together, one has AIDS and the other doesn't. Right. And the one played by Joe Mantello who doesn't have AIDS, it's like, you know, I love you, but I, I'm too young to take care of somebody. Yeah, he, I can't do this. Right, I can't do this. I can't be in this relationship. I can't do this. And I thought that was a very honest. Yeah, I like portrayal that part too. of what it must have been like for a lot of gay people, you know, who are losing their partners, but they're in their 30s. And like, I, you know, I can deal with my parents when the time comes, but I'm in the prime of my life. I can't deal with somebody who's dying.
0: Yeah.
1: And I thought that was an, that was a very honest thing. The political stuff and Ethel Rosenberg and all. That yeah, thing. that kind was of weird. weird. You know, Ethel. I, I, I news, news, news to you, Tony Kushner. Ethel Rosenberg was guilty. Hello, <laughs> yeah, they, you right. know, we got the we got the files from the Soviet Union. <laughs> when was they was strange. When they released the Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were guilty. Right, they really were spies. Yeah, I
0: don't think there was any. To, don't well, well, back, we all agree that they no, were? No, guilty? no. But back <laughs> then,
1: no. Back then, they were innocent. No, it was. Uh-huh. Oh, they were ramrodded by the evil American government. They uh-huh. weren't spies, you know. And then the Soviet. Archives were released, and yeah, sure enough, there are Ethel and Julius yeah.
0: spies, <laughs> spying on you. The- I mean, maybe not spying uh, on purpose. It just worked out that well, they were way, spies. But, yeah. There's no question. So, uh, by, reply, by the way, so was Alger lie.
1: Hiss. There's another one. Who? Uh, Alger Hiss. You know, Alger Hiss, Whitaker Chambers.
0: No, I don't know that at all.
1: Oh well, Alger, fam- famous uh, American oh. history here. Uh, Whitaker Chambers, who was this brilliant, troubled guy. Whittaker Chambers fingered Alger Hiss as a spy for the Soviet Union. Alger Hiss was in the State Department.
0: So this is just all this stuff from McCarthyism again. They were just doing it all again back well, in the it, it was happen- War. It,
1: well, this is like 48, 49, so it's just before McCarthyism. Oh,
0: so it's around that but time the person, when everybody was doing that.
1: But the person who's leading the investigation into Alger Hiss is a young congressman from California by the name of Richard Nixon. <sighs> and Alger Hiss, of course, denied that he was guilty. They found him guilty at the end. But he didn't – I met Alger Hiss.
0: <laughs> you meet him, everybody. I he
1: came to teach a class at – by, my professor at Columbia knew him, and he came to talk to us. He was, he was maintaining. Now, this is in the eighties; we didn't know everything yet. He's maintaining his innocence to this day. And he's great. now he's long dead, Alger Hiss. Oh. I have his autograph. <laughs> and, and but he said I was innocent and ramrodded by Nixon and all this kind of stuff. And it was the witch hunts and McCarthyism and the nonsense, the craziness. Everybody thought Alger Hiss was was uh, was not a spy and was framed. Soviet archives come out. Yep. There's old Alger Hiss, spy for the Sylvia. I would have thought he was a spy just on
0: that <laughs> stupid name alone.
1: It's well, ridiculous. The interesting thing about Hiss and Nixon was...
0: The name is Hiss. Yeah, Alger People Hiss. People go Hiss. Exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, what do you expect is going to happen?
1: But uh, there's, a, there's a great moment in the hearings. I think you can find it on YouTube. There's a very good documentary called The Trials mm. of Alger Hiss. It's a good movie, but it's wrong because it basically makes the case Hiss is innocent and we later find out that he was a spy. Oh. So there you go. So... Nixon is asking him this question, pressing him. And Hiss goes, Mr. Nixon, my law school was Harvard. What was yours? And Nixon had gone to like Whittier. In California. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and Nixon went back with his staff said, I'm going to nail that fucking
0: bastard. Oh, yeah. And he did. He was good at that. Real good at oh, yeah. seeking vengeance. Yeah,
1: I'm going to nail And he did. And then there was the famous pumpkin patch. Yeah, the, the pumpkin. Ro- the microphone. Pa- I was—I was, was going to say
0: the pumpkin papers, but it was the pumpkin, pumpkin patch, right? They hid the microphone. Yeah, the the, there's a famous picture yeah, of him yeah. taking out the microphone of the, microphone the yeah. pumpkin patch. Yeah,
1: and yeah, and everybody made fun of this, and they said, "Oh, this is crazy right-wing nonsense," and they're going after this great man, Alger Hiss, and the State Department is yeah. innocent, maintained his innocence right up until he died, and then boom, Soviet Union collapses. They release the archives. There's Ethel. There's Julius, and there's Alger. All three of them were spies.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Anything else? I, I may have to start. Oh, yeah. No, no. I'm what, I was saying I got to wrap what time up.
0: Is it? It's two. Yeah, I better. Yeah, I know. I I just want to tell you this has been so great. Oh, thank you. I really you. appreciate you coming down. And I just. Are you, people
1: going to listen for a two hour podcast? Or do you I, edit, I, you it? No. You just let it go. I just right? let it
0: go. I, do, I usually do an hour and a half while, anyway. But this was so interesting. We just let it go and it's just easy. And it was, I felt it was flowing, except for my one part where I got confused, you (laughs) know. But, uh, My, and people, my, my listeners expect that from me. I'm not very bright. <laughs> so do your parents. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But no, it was so great because, uh, you know, I mean, you, we seem to like the same stuff. And uh, again, you don't meet many straight guys that like that, that understand the theater and James Bond and opera. the and, uh, yeah. and
1: Alger Hiss. You don't meet a lot of straight the guys. The only thing you don't Alger know is Hiss. about
0: football. So that's the, uh, you, you know, you I want to I know small. it's the,
1: uh, <laughs> the 49ers. You do
0: know that the Super Bowl is I'm, Sunday, right? I Although have, this is coming out after that. I so. have been told. Yeah. I have been told. But uh, I got to thank you so much, Michael yeah, Riedel. You to, Did you pay royalties for the song? No, I don't give a shit. No. <laughs> <laughs> like I said. If, no credit, if, no if royalties. If somebody, <laughs> as Mel Brooks You turned it around. You bought it back. <laughs> That's awesome. It. Michael Riedel with Len, the great Len Berman, who's yeah. very nice. Oh, I got to meet him a couple times yeah, at NBC. a mensch, and uh, he's not uh, very bright, but he's a. <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> That's the way it seems. To. <laughs> Len Berman, Michael Riedel, in the morning on seven ten WOR, in New York City, weekday six to ten. But you can hear it on iHeart Radio
1: anytime, everywhere. They've had it's this thing amazing. called the app, really great. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I miss the old. I miss the
0: old. The old transistor. Ring. I do too. I do too. But I do enjoy. The Alexa is very easy to just pick up anything at this point.
1: But I I, I love radio going back as a kid because when I was a kid in the 70s, I would listen every Saturday, Sunday night, I think it was
0: Sunday night, to King Pixar Flower?
1: No, no, no. The, the door would creak open.
0: <laughs> Come in. Welcome. This is E.G. Marshall in the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. I don't remember that. Oh, it's great. You can find him on I YouTube. know. Well, you know, when Harry Harrison died.
1: Yeah, I right, know. You yeah, guys were yeah. talking about yeah, it on yeah, the show Harry today,
0: but um, yeah, me too. And I was listening to some of the old jingles, you know, Harry Harrison, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I say to myself, "Oh my God, are we that old?" Because it sounds like our parents would listen to that kind of stuff. Well, you know? we but, are
1: old, but our parents were listening to us, but that's why we heard it. Yeah, right. Exactly. It was on the car but it's radio. it's one
0: of those, those jingles with those people. It sounds yeah, like something from the forties. I know. But and this, it, was 70s. this was the seventies. This was the seventies. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Hangover from. But
0: the that's earth. why, and that's why I do that voice at the beginning. It's probably because. I grew up on Harry Head. I just want to talk like this all the time. All the time. But you have to have yeah. the echo. echo. Yeah, I know. I don't have it. I can figure I think. Winc I think I have that on the machine. See? Ah, there you <laughs> go. go. <laughs> WNBC. Yeah, cuz you used to work with Imus, so that Absolutely. Uh, I oh, that,
1: there's a whole other I can right, play a right. whole That's the part two of the podcast. I'm a Howard
0: person so uh, well, I don't care for.
1: There know. are two there are only two people in life. Howard people or Imus people. Yeah. I was yeah. an Imus guy.
0: I know you were, so I didn't want to bring anything up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Michael Riedel, thank you so much for coming fun. today. And uh, I love your column. And that's every Friday in the New York Post, right? It is indeed. Yeah. And it's terrific. And, uh, you know, we got to hang out some more. Cause... When my
1: book comes out, Singular Sensation, the Triumph of Broadway. My yeah. first book was Razzle, first Razzle Dazzle. Was Razzle Dazzle the Battle for Broadway.
0: Yeah. How Broadway is, like, trying to hold together. And how it begins is getting the theaters and everything, which is fascinating. Like, how did 43rd and 44th and 45th Street become that? And that's all in the book. And And the sequel
1: is uh, Singular Sensation, the Triumph on Broadway. And it's about Broadway in the 90s when Andrew Lloyd Webber's era ends. Right. And a new era begins where the Americans are back. And you get Rent, Chicago, Lion King. I go up to the producers, and I end on September 11th. Oh. And that night, that Tuesday (laughs) night, Giuliani called the Broadway producers and said, I want Broadway up and running by Thursday. Wow. I want to show the world New York is back in business. And the best way I can do that is have the marquees of Broadway lit on Thursday night.
0: And I got it done. That's great. Michael Riedel, everybody. We'll see you next time on the podcast. Good night.